Welcome to the show. It's the Z Dog and Kurt show today. Kurt Jimengal, welcome, brother. Thank you so much for having me on, man. I'm extremely glad to be here. Dude, this is a conversation I've been so excited to have. So for parts of my audience that don't know who Kurt is, uh, I watch his videos on YouTube because he interviews the kind of people that I deeply care about hearing from. And he goes so deep. I'm talking about like the Donald Hoffman's, Bernardo Castrups, talking to Rupert Spira, which was a ridiculous like three or four hour conversation. And I watched all of it and was just like this the whole time. Kurt is a documentary filmmaker and just a, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, brother? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a filmmaker first and foremost with a background in math and physics. And I've always been interested in what are called theories of everything, which is a somewhat technical physics term, though it's now in common parlance. And it usually in the physical sciences means a unification of gravity with the standard model, as well as an ex explanation for other phenomenon such as what is going on inside of a black hole, which you think would be answered by a quantum theory of gravity, but not necessarily what is the beginning of the universe. There's differences as to what a theory of everything constitutes. Doesn't matter. You get the vague, you get the overview. As for what I do with the channel is I explore those because I've always been interested in theories of everything. And luckily I have some I have some mathematical and, and physics background so I can do so with a certain level of depth. And I like to question as deep as I possibly can the guests that I speak to. So some of them have been, uh, they range from theoretical physicists to people who are espousers of the idea that consciousness is primary. I explore theoretical physics, free will, consciousness, and God. Like God, okay, that sounds like woo, but it depends on what the definition is. That's the channel. Do, do, do you guys see why I love him like like in a like want to marry him kind of way? So this these are exactly the same things I'm interested in. And what's what's interesting, Kurt, is like, you know, I didn't have the physics and math background that you have. Um, and I'm certainly not a documentary filmmaker. And uh, but oh, damn it. Hold on. Let me turn off that noise. Uh, and I'm also if don't be put off with the fact that I'm staring down at the laptop occasionally off at you and at the camera because I'm looking well, at people's I'm comments, too. You know how I'm that impressed came. that you're you've set up your camera such that the eye the eye line is aligned with the with me, so it looks like you're looking at me, whereas me I'm pointed downward. Well, you know, it's one lenses up here. It's one of those things that I've had to I've had to work on for a long time trying to figure it out. What's weird is it's very it's actually off putting to people on Zoom who are used to Zoom culture, where it's kind of like, "Hey, Kurt, how's it going? Uh, yeah, things are good, right?" And then suddenly you're getting this weird amounts of eye contact with a background that isn't a um, fake green screen zoom background. And people are just, they're a little unnerved. Actually, this is something I wanted to ask you about because we can, we can talk about the theories of everything stuff, which is important. This idea of, of um, is there unifying structure and, and conceptual framework that we can understand everything with, or is it a infinite regress and that kind of thing? But, but you know, even before that, what's interesting is, you know, in this, since the pandemic started, this medium that we use has just exponentially blown up. Is is that why, did you see your channel really getting more engagement post-pandemic? It was started post-pandemic, so it started during the pandemic. We're not post it, but yes, there's a huge craving for discussions that are about the fundamental nature of reality. And perhaps that's because people are philosophically destabilized during them. Uh, mentally insecure place, and I know I am. 
lubricus lubricus ground with regard to belief, at least for me. It's variable and a straddle. And so people are perhaps looking for certainty, and that's why they come to these channels. Although if you're looking for any answers, like I assure you I have virtually none, and the answer to almost any question that Zubin poses to me will be met with a, 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 a dubious, I don't know, like I'm, I'm dubious about my own dubiousness even. <laughs> It, that that dubiousness about our own dubiousness is this kind of meta awareness or it's it's the fundamental belief about belief that everything needs to be kind of questioned even our our dearest held deepest and most hidden beliefs actually i think to really drill into them and go okay but what if this was not true and actually what's present now in my experience in what i can actually detect now that that supports or refutes this belief you know even it may be a simple belief like, you know, this piece of Z-Dog MD signs the crap out of it merchandise, which I would feel like I'm shilling, but we don't sell it anymore, uh, is separate from, from me in some ways, a separate object in space and time, that space and time are real and these kind of things. And actually, the more you start to examine those beliefs and actually use the immediate experience, the sensory experience of this moment as a guide, you really start to destabilize some of those beliefs that, and, and bringing it back to what you were talking about with the pandemic, I found the same thing. I think people are really fundamentally shook by the fact that society is nothing as, nothing as stable as they thought it was, that we're actually in an incredibly fragile interconnected world that it just, uh, you know, a blockage in the Suez Canal ripples out and causes my inability to wipe my ass with toilet paper, which apparently is a near and dear need for the Western person, so much so that they hoard it when the pandemic starts. So this destabilization, I think, has forced some degree of introspection that's been a long time coming. Is, have you found the same thing in your extensive pandemic travels online? Yeah, and conversely, you just mentioned a disadvantage because you're connected to what's extremely outside you or seemingly so, but there's also some It's also inspirational in a sense, because it means that your loving nature to the degree that you express it and your truth-telling ability, or at least I would say it's more important to not lie. Peterson has this rule about tell the truth or at least not lie. I would flip that and say, don't lie instead of, not tell the, instead of telling the truth, because it's extremely easy to delude yourself into thinking what you're doing is truth-telling when actually you're, well, you're you're trying to win an intellectual battle or show how truth-telling you are by saying to someone a mean comment. Well, either way, that your ability to, that your loving nature can spread far beyond you in the same way that something malicious can spread to you. So it's a twin of both inspiration and horror. This idea of not lying is something that I find really interesting. And of course, Sam Harris wrote his book called Lying about exactly this idea that there are this, there's a group of people that are radical truth tellers. You know, they, they just will not, they'll focus on not lying. And what you mentioned about this idea of love, this idea of a, a way of doing that compassionately, I think is key because it's very easy to say, okay, you know, we use white lies to grease so, social situations to not hurt somebody's feelings and so on. And, and I think not telling all the truth is a very different sort of moral equivalence to telling, a, say, telling an 
active lie to cover up something that is true. Um, and actually in your, in your documentary, which I, I, I wanna shout out early on because it's so crazy and experimental and awesome that people who are into this should check it out. And I put a link in the description. It's better left unsaid. I believe you even said, you know, you, use that, you had a quote where you said, you, you ask people for advice when you know the answer, right? But the answer is too painful to actually accept. So you ask someone for advice that they'll, they'll hopefully tell you something different or a white lie or something, right? Right, I think that's Emily Zhang, although I could be mispronouncing. I think you're name, right, yeah. Misremembering. She had this quote that the only reason you ask for advice is because you know the answer and you don't want to accept it. So for example, some people will go to other people for relationship advice, hoping that what they're hearing is, you should stay with that person when you know deep down you shouldn't. What's your, what's your take on self-deception? Because I think that we, I think one of the, you know, you actually ended the documentary with a beautiful Feynman quote, which I won't, I won't give away, but I think one of the fundamental problems of our time, if we're gonna emerge new systems that are gonna transform, say, let's even just stick with my specialty, healthcare. If we're gonna transform healthcare, we better fucking transform ourselves first, which means the self-deception, the lies we tell ourselves about ourselves, the hidden beliefs that we hold about ourselves. For example, if we hold the belief, I'm a good person, right? Now it seems on the surface like a wonderful belief, but when something, when we do something or think something, you know, the thought arises, something that isn't nice, or we accidentally or purposefully do something that's clearly not in the best interest of someone else. And that dissonance then generates a kind of tension that causes a weird kind of dysfunction that actually projects outwards. And I think our systems of human, you know, our human systems are actually epiphenomenon of our internal states. And until we can turn that lens inward, we're never gonna solve these external problems. We're just gonna continue to project our own dysfunction out outwardly. Have, have you thought quite a bit about this? I don't see another solution other than extreme self-flagellation and mortification, self-mortification even, to say that any anytime you think you're doing, at least for me, anytime I think I'm a good person, I'll, I find via examination that what I was doing was cowardice, masquerading as something good or or maliciousness or rancor. So I'm extremely hesitant to say that anything I'm doing is good. I'm just trying to minimize the bad, or at least I'm trying to try to minimize the bad. Yeah, I think that really involves examining belief, right? You know, like, who am I? <laughs> you know, e even, that, even that is a series of nested beliefs that we hold and are conditioned from very young ages and are influenced by everything around us and our genetics, right? I'm not a big blank slate kind of guy. I think a lot of who we are is passed on uh, genetically and otherwise, and then there's a component of environment. But really, I, I, I'm with Pinker a little bit, uh, Stephen Pinker, on this idea that we really are handed this kind of, you know, I'm gonna use a loaded term, this karma, not in a religious sense, but in the causes and conditions that led to us. And to some extent, there is a radical self-acceptance that comes when you realize that you are as you are and cannot be other, which means just that knowledge may allow you a kind of freedom and flexibility to be better than you were. But it, it, it involves 
actually accepting who you are instead of constantly putting up obfuscation and and hiding from it. And a, as a public person, and and you are too, and you your rise has been meteoric. When I watch your stuff, and and actually this is something I should I should say quick early on. When I saw your interview with Hoffman and Castro, now these are a couple of my like the people that I I've interviewed and and I watched those interviews and I was like, God damn, like this this guy's like a kid. He's vastly smarter, incredibly handsome, and is asking these tremendously nuanced questions and had these guys' attention and and the audience attention for like three hours of conversation. And my immediate response was rage, unworthiness, jealousy, anger, like all that just bubbles up. I'm like, God, I wanna, this guy needs to fail, right? But <laughs> but the, but the but the cool thing, I was proud of myself. I was like- That warms my heart. That's the malicious part of me. <laughs> the, the, the part of me that, um, that, that is more meta aware now from eight years of being on a path of meditation and that kind of thing was like, oh, look at that. What's going on there? Like what part of your ego is really, is, has a sense of unworthiness or the sense of like, you're never good enough and so on and so forth. And by examining that, like my next act was to send you an email and go, dude, you're awesome. <laughs> like I love what you're doing. And that connected us. And and you had sent me an email prior too, because you had just reached out spontaneously. And it's very weird that you have to, you have to have some degree of self-awareness to allow things to happen that I think are beneficial for all, but that requires the work. You have to actually put in the work. I don't think we're born that way. There are very few that are born that way. I certainly wasn't. I am a complete asshole at baseline. Complete asshole. I share your animosity for those who succeed in a domain that you think you should be succeeding at a greater level than the person who is. I've come to the, and I haven't come to it, but I'm coming to this idea of, well, love thy enemy. And there are some people, especially in the self-development scene, because I used to be a part of that, that I despise. But I, I think that the reason I despise them is because I'm jealous. And so it, it, it took almost everything out of me, everything from me to click the like button on someone that I hated. <laughs> and I did, that as, I did that as a test for myself. And there's this calm that comes at least over myself after I, I tell this story plenty. So some people ask me, oh, how are you supposed to solve this whole extreme left, extreme right divide? And someone was interviewing me on the radio recently, yesterday or, or so, I believe. And he said, he wanted me to say what, because he's against the extreme left. And he wanted, and usually the people who are adamantly against the extreme left identify with being a part of the right or even extreme right. And he wanted me to say that what we need to do is fight back. And I'm, I'm for standing up for oneself and saying what one believes. I think that's noble and extremely difficult, but I don't advocate for any fighting. I advocate for extending a, an arm of love to one's enemy in the same way that there's the story of, of Jesus. And I'm not saying this as a Christian, I'm not Christian. I'm saying this as, 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 as the teller of a story that if you truly thought about it, it would bring you to tears. When Jesus was being taken away by people who he knew, at least according to the story, were going to torture him, kill him. Peter, who was his friend, 
cut off the ear of the soldier who was taking him away. And Jesus said, no, and took the ear and healed his enemy. And like that kind of love, man, to be shouted at and still say, and not in a condescending way, because it can easily be condescending. I love you despite you. No, but mean it and heal your enemy. I think that's even despite knowing what they're doing to you. I think that's the path forward. And obviously someone can say, well, then we'll just be taken over by, by brutal dictators, the bullies. I don't think that's true. I think that these tit for tat models don't take into account inspiration. The story of Jesus is inspirational. So these separate agents who can interact with one another with different strategies, such as tit for tat or tit for tat with forgiveness. I'm sure you've heard of these models, the people who are listening. I don't think they take into account inspiration, how one agent, if one agent identifies with themselves, then then they die. But if one identifies with what's good, then one lives because the good lives on through you, through your example and through influencing others. So I, I'm not claiming that I live by that, but I'm coming to that realization more and more trying, or at least trying to try to embody it. I, I try to end every show we do with, uh, I love you guys and we're out and, and mean it, like actually mean it. Like I love everybody as they are myself, which gets to, you know, one of those interesting philosophical and ontological questions of what is the nature of reality? If are we one substance, is there one mind? And you talk to Kastrup and Hoffman and Spira about it. And I'm just curious where, having talked to all these guys and, and physicists and having this mathematical and phys uh, uh, physicist background, you know, in your documentary, you were very, it was really remarkable to watch because, and, and again, it, for some people, they're just gonna be like, I don't, what the hell? And for others, you know, like myself, I was just like, oh, I've never actually connected the dots in the way that he's connecting it. And by the end, you know, I watched the long director's cut, it's two hours. You, you, you said, what's the minimum amount of information necessary to extract the information and the meaning from the message? And I thought that was a fascinating experiment because, you know, two, four, six, eight, like how, how much do you need to get the rest of the pattern? And your point was, well, maybe when we look at something like the Bible and, and, and we think, oh, you know, this whole thing could be reduced to the 10 commandments or, you know, a couple of sayings. Or the golden rule, which is something I despise. I mean, I despise people saying that that's what connects all religions and that's all we need. And I can talk about that after, but continue. Let's definitely, let's definitely follow that because that's great, the golden rule. So yeah, and this, this idea, but then, but then you say, but, but is that really true? Because this was written, first of all, in a time and a context that's different from where we are now. Could the meaning have only emerged from a length that's roughly the length of the Bible, say, and we're just not really savvy to to that, and maybe something was lost in the translations and so on. But and and then you 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 tied it back. You know, maybe that's why this documentary is two hours long, and it kind of tied the whole thing into a tapestry. And I don't know if you did that intentionally or not, but maybe you want to talk about that and then bring it back to Golden Rule and your concern with that. Okay, let's talk about the. I would also talk about the length of the Bible or the ancient texts in general. And I'd say that not only is the length of the Bible maybe not protracted as much people as plenty of people think, but it's necessary and also not not sufficient. So it's one. Well, how do you get that? See, apparently there, not apparently there's something called the Protestants who were driven by sola scriptoris, meaning by scripture alone. I don't know if I buy that because plenty of 
our values and well, our values are also embodied. Now I referenced this in the documentary, there are four forms of knowing, at least four forms. Propositional, that is, I'm speaking right now, if you were to simply read it, that's propositional. Procedural, I'm just I'm gesticulating, so there's a mod, at least a modicum of body language, though the research says that it's 70%, and I don't understand how they get that number. But, because how do you quantify what the message is? And so, okay, there's that. Then there's participatory, and then, forgive my, Lassitude, it's it's been quite a grueling week. You yeah, you you've not slept. Right? I haven't slept well for a few days. Mm. And I've been on this string of podcasts. This is the fourth one for today. And after this, I'm not looking forward to this ending. I actually wanted to speak with you for like three hours if I can. But after this, Zubin, I am going to just it's I'm gonna feel like a like a junkie that just put heroin in my body and and just be dissolved in a sea of bliss for hopefully a week or two weeks because I need a, a break. Okay, we'll, we can talk about that after getting to the four forms of knowing is there's participatory procedural perspectival and propositional. It's not clear to me that religion is propositional per se. And I know the new atheists like to pick apart texts and literally interpret it. And there's a word, there's a great word to, if you don't know, it's called subreption. It means an inference drawn from a deliberate, a deliberate misrepresentation. Mm -hmm. So what they're doing is when they disprove the Bible, they're, they're using subreptions. And I don't think that's true. Firstly, I don't think the Bible is meant to be interpreted literally. I also have a problem with the word literal interpretation because you can't have a literal interpretation. Literal means uninterpreted. So it's almost as if you're saying uninterpreted interpretation. And then third, it's not clear that all of what a religion is, is in the text. So I'm not a fan of sola scriptoris per se. Sola scriptura, I think it is. Yeah. I want to go back to your sleep. So, yes, yeah. How's that going? Why, well, why so bad? And and because you, you're desperate for some uh, some rest. And I think a lot of people in healthcare, in particular, suffer this syndrome. What's been going on? What's driving you? And how's your sleeping and all of that? Mm, I find it difficult to shut my mind off. I have tried meditation for years, but not consistently. I don't find it helps. I also find that people who, you probably see this, people in the non-dual community, people who are Eastern, people who are Western, they think that their view is the correct one and they try to blanketly apply it to everyone. I don't know if, it's, if meditation is for everyone. And I wonder if part of my self-torture is by trying to impose meditation on me when I'm at this stage, not meant for meditation. It could be that. It could be I'm not meditating correctly. But either way, meditation doesn't help. Medication can help, but I'm not going to take benzodiazepines, though melatonin works a scintilla. CBD seems to work a bit. Either way, what's kept what keeps me up is generally if I have an interview for the next few days, I'm playing over scenarios and I'm trying to understand the theory of the person that I'm interviewing. That's one of the I was speaking with a prominent YouTuber. I'll tell you 
off air who that is, Zubin. He was asking me, he's like, hey, Kurt, I have more subscribers than you, but you have more views. How is it that you do so? And then, he, and then I said, it's extreme luck, which it is like 95% luck, man. And then also an extreme amount of work. And the work is because I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to comprehend these theories. The whole point of the podcast is not, I don't care too much about conversing with people. I care about understanding the landscape of theories of everything, explicating them, and perhaps even advancing our own. And I say our own because the theories of everything, YouTube is almost like a community. And I, and I'm, I would like it to be a, I would like myself to be a vessel rather than the prominent person of it. In fact, I think I, there are some YouTube channels that have had a nominal, have had a, a name that's tangential to what they do and then their name attached. So let's say I'm going to pick on some people, but please, if you're these two YouTubers, I love you. Okay. So there's artificial intelligence with Lex Friedman. And then there was modern wisdom with Chris Williamson. And then what they do is they remove the prior and then just they omit that and keep their name. I am toying with doing the opposite because I don't want this to be about me. So maybe eventually it'll be theories of everything. Obviously there's some of me that's doing a bit of branding by keeping my name in the channel. But at some point I'd like to truncate that. Either way, I'm tr the whole point of the channel is to explore theories of everything. Everything. So I'm, I'm deeply ensconcing myself in these theories and it takes, they're not trivial, not trivial in the least. In fact, try reading three pages of what Chris Langan has written. That took me a day to get through three pages. And then it gets, gets quicker, obviously, as you get familiar with the terminology. But I'm trying to understand these. And so I was talking to someone who's a prominent YouTuber and he was saying, hey, Kurt, your channel has less subscribers, but more views. How I said it's, 90, it's like luck and then work, extreme amount of work. And then he got offended at the extreme amount of work aspect. He said, well, my work doesn't drain me. I just listen to them. I listen to guests on podcasts. I go for, I do it when I, while I meditate or while I'm doing the dishes. In fact, it invigorates me. And it was as if he was offended that I said that the work that I do drains me. And I do think what I'm doing right now, the way that I'm doing it is unhealthy, obviously, because I'm barely able to articulate a sentence here. But, but I don't see right now, I don't see another way around around this given the goal of deeply trying to understand these theories of everything. So that affects my sleep at times. Luckily, Zubin, after this, man, I just, I'm going, I'm going to rest for like, I'm, I'm going to hibernate for a little while. <laughs> man, I, I, how old are you, Kurt? Can I ask? Yeah, sure. How old do I look? And you're not going to offend me. Oh man, you look like you're in your twenties, dude. I'm 32. Really? Well, so, dude, so you're still 32 to me is, is, is very young. Uh, and when I was your age, my mind was so overactive and, and I, I was like you very diligent and very, uh, wrapped in the intellectual aspects, the thinking process and the making the connections. And if I closed my eyes, a million thoughts and a million connections. And with that came with that kind of capacity comes high anxiety. So sleep was not there. It just didn't happen. And the, the, that sort of phenotype of person, I, I kind of see it in you when I see your interviews, because I can tell, 
I think most of the audience can tell that you've put a shit ton of work into these guests. Like the fact that you can talk for, you know, three or four hours to somebody who's esoteric to begin with, right, is is pretty remarkable. There's no answer for that right away. The answer starts to emerge as you become more Absolutely. It, it, I agree. Yeah. You any if I were to tell you bro, you just need to realize that you're just pure consciousness, man. And these thoughts are just going across the sky like clouds and you can watch them. Good luck with that. Try that. Just try that. At this stage, we are identified with the thought stream and the thought stream is everything. And in a way that's awesome because that's how we, like the guy who was offended by the, the amount of diligence, you'd really want to introspect and go, Hey, why is that? Is it is it is he threatened by someone who can work hard and is talented, or is he is he more really convinced that his way is the only way? I'll tell you when when you tell me that, I go ah, that's why it's this combination of things. Why your stuff is so good? I have at this age, I'm 48, so it took me I don't know how many decades to release a lot how of old that. Are you? Sorry, it I'm uh, 48, so. It took me however many decades to release this fixation that I had on hyperdiligence as a way to get by, and but I needed it. If I didn't have it, I wouldn't have the tool tool set that I have to do what I do. And now what I do is I try to drop into flow and see what happens. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. There's some part of the audience that loves that. There's some part of the audience that really wants a more structured sort of thing. But I can't be anything but what I am in this moment now. It used to be I would try not to be. I try to be whatever anyone wanted, which was very, it was very ego dys dystonic. It felt very wrong, but yet you'd get the dopamine burst from whatever validation that came from doing that. So it, it really took a lot of time for me to find that way. I, and I'm not saying that's your path, but I think that I'm very sympathetic to what you're going through. <laughs> it's, it's very hard, very, very hard. Um, your, your your documentary, by the way, for people who ha have not seen it, it really speaks to who you are. It, 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 there's so many gems in there of kind of getting at who Kurt is right now that it's it's absolutely a fascinating thing to watch. And and when you talk about your parents, I thought that was fascinating because I resonated with one of the things you said, and I don't know if you said this consciously or as just part of who you are. You said, you know, I really, the idea that I they may not be around to kind of see what I've accomplished and that kind of thing, I'm like, that's that's an immigrant thing, man. Like for me, like this idea that so much of my life I lived like, what am I gonna do to to show my parents that I'm worthy of being a kid of theirs? And and then at some point something snaps. I think maybe you do actually accomplish enough or you let it go, but then suddenly it's like, how can I show you I'm just like doing as little as possible and just trying to be me, <laughs> you know, cause I think that's ultimately what we all, you know, what, what I was looking for, but yeah, really. I gotta change my headphones and I wanna hear you through this stream of consciousness. Just give me a second, all right? Yeah, of course. So while, while you're doing that, I'm gonna look at some comments here. Um, boy, there's a lot of comments. Uh, too much at one time, try separating the now to what can wait, says Ann Cairns. So that's always, that's, Good advice for anyone. It's very hard for an autonomic mind because we're not really, we, we see, so here's one of the things that I thought of, you know, when I was hearing you talk about this, there is for me, when that happens. I'm when, gonna change to hardwired. Oh yeah, sure, sure, sure. Um, can you hear me now though, or no? Ah, now you can hear me, yeah? 
Okay, let's see. All right, we're going to find out because I don't want to talk. Great, great, great. Yeah, yeah, okay. I can hear yeah, you. You can hear me? Clear. What, what I, I don't know. If, okay. I don't know if anyone has, can help me with this tech problem. Anytime I use OBS, which is recording right now, there's distortion placed on the head on the Bluetooth headphones. Don't know why that is. Okay, I, continue. Yeah, I use OBS for streaming live, but not in this case because I'm I'm using um, Caster. But I found that OBS is very quirky since it's open source. There's some weird stuff in there that people may know the answer to. Okay, so so one thing you said when you talked about this thought storm that you have at night that prevents you from sleeping. I, I, mm -hmm. I actually think of that as a, a storm of thought. For many people, myself as one of these, we hold ourselves accountable for having the thought storm and it wraps a series of meta beliefs around what's actually happening. So thoughts are coming and then we go, these thoughts shouldn't be coming so fast. I should be sleeping right now. Why can't I turn the thoughts off? Why am I having right. these thoughts? I'm somehow a bad person or I'm not good enough or whatever. And that adds another layer because as, as you probably know from talking to so many people that you've talked to, we don't author our thoughts. In fact, any level of investigation can kind of reveal pretty quickly that these thoughts arise. They may be from causes and conditions, but we're not the author of them. In other words, we cannot control what we think because even trying to do that actually causes more thoughts to ripple in the pond of consciousness. That doesn't mean we can't frame our response to the thoughts or how we kind of interpret our, our thought storm, but we certainly can't control the actual thoughts that arise. And that illusion of control, which again relates to free will and all that, which is a whole nother thing, but that illusion of control- We're gonna talk about that. Yeah, we should definitely talk about that. That illusion of control, it, it creates a kind of suffering. It's a kind of a meta suffering on top of the suffering of identifying with the thoughts. So it, it's very hard to tease those things out. It's only recently that I've been able to watch my mind enough with a lot of help from different resources that to go, oh, look what's happening. This is a thought storm. You know, okay, okay, don't, don't, I'm not gonna judge myself for the thought storm. And what's weird is the thought storm then kind of runs its course. So now when I wake up at 3 a.m. with this feeling of, like pressure in the chest, this unknown source of anxiety, right? That clearly has some cause and condition that I can't pinpoint. And then the thought storm launches. Oh my God, why am I anxious? What's, why am I so anxious? Oh, I have an interview today. Oh man, what am I gonna do in this interview? And, and then the, the thoughts start secreting, like the sponge of the mind squeezes and it just secretes these thoughts. I'm able to actually, at some point, get a meta-aware metacognition and go, oh, look at this, look what's happening, okay. Now, okay, when you say you're able to do that, how are you able to do that without exercising free will? So this is where I find free will is a fascinating, fascinating thing. So, yeah. you know, I, we know the arguments against free will. We know arguments for determinism, that everything is just causes and conditions and we're just along for the ride. But actually, I'm increasingly wondering whether how we direct our attention is not one of the only things we do have within some degree of will. Now, Hoffman, with his conscious agent theory, actually feels that each agent within the complex instantiation that we are has its own de novo uh, 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 free will, but it's constrained by the free will decisions of other agents within the matrix, and therefore, true like free will at this instantiation isn't really true, it's constrained, but yet novelty still enters the universe in the form of decisions 
at each level. And so I think free will is, I, I don't think there is no free will. I think free will is not what we think it is. I think it is, and I'm not a compatibilist or something like Dennett. I, I just don't think it's what we think it is. So there's a, 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 something that happens and you could even say this, well, even that's not free will when I'm recognizing the thought storm and I'm deciding to do this thing. It's more that this neuronal storm, this complex series of, of happenings that is me, suddenly yeah. because of previous causes and conditions, I read a text, I studied some Buddhism, I read Sam Harris's book on free will, I studied Angelo DeLulo's book on awakening, and now there's enough juice there to emerge a decision to go, a, a decision that's mine to go, oh, this is this thought storm, I should sit back and watch it and then let it dissipate. So it's it's very complex, and I think even claiming to understand it would be just pure foolishness. Mm -hmm. So in what you just articulated, it's more about that we don't have free will. It's that our decisions are based upon the prior conditions, and these are also not within our control. I would say this. I, I'm actually kind of partial to the Buddhist idea of dependent origination that everything happens because of causes and conditions that aren't simple. It's not just, I lift up the cup, therefore this happens. It's more like the entire web is connected in ways that even the superest supercomputer can't, could never predict yet. And that then, it, you know, unified vibration of stuff happening affects what thought arises next. And Have you heard of Wolfram's concept of computational irreducibility? I haven't. Okay, so what it is, it's, it's Wolfram thinks that this is the origin of free will. Computational irreducibility means that a system is, you can't predict the outcome of a system without running the system. And because we're embedded within the system that we're running, you can't predict your own actions unless you simply run them. Almost like, a, a, a simple example is, fluid dynamics, it's difficult to know what's, where a certain particle is going to end up unless you just simulate it. You can't derive it. And right, okay, well, then he would say that that's the origin of free will. I don't, it sounds similar to what you're saying. Okay, I love that. And I'll tell you why, because, you know, there's, I think there's, I don't know if it's fMRI data or what, but human minds simulate out what they're going to do. And in fact, I think Sam Harris has talked about this. We, you know, if I if I go, I want to pick up this cup, my mind has already done a projection. This is what it looks like. And it lights up motor sections of the brain that would normally be involved in actually picking up that cup. So in a way, our mind is like a future predictor, but that act of prediction feels to the to the consciousness that we are like a free will decision. It, it's almost like it, you know, it predict it, it, you know, and, and these studies have been cited, you know, you know you've made a decision like up to six seconds on fMRI before you're aware the decision's been made. But that doesn't mean that some aspect of your mind system hasn't, hasn't, con hasn't in a free will sense, de novo made a decision that you're just not aware of at this level of consciousness where we are. And that's why you know we have all these unconscious processes that in themselves may well be conscious at their level in a way we are not able to experience without brain damage, drugs, whatever, that put us at that level. Um, so free will becomes this intensely complex thing to even think about. And, and one thing I want, I want to say is, 
if you've ever had a meditative experience, and it's not really meditative, it's more a non-dual experience. And what I mean by that is, and I, I can actually try to put myself in this headspace even now, where, and there's a beautiful old piece of wisdom writing, a Buddhist sutta called the Bahia Sutta that, that points this out. And it, and it goes like this, train yourself this way is what this wise sage is, is telling to somebody who's trying to learn to be enlightened. And he says, train yourself in this way. In the scene, there will merely be what is seen. In the herd, there will merely be what is heard. In the thought, there will merely be the thought. And so on through the six senses, which the sixth is mind. And the idea there is, notice what isn't there is a you an I, a perceiver. When they say in the scene, there will merely be what is seen, it means that there is just seeing. So this cup is just this self-knowing, self-illuminating happening. Now, when you drop into that state, the self cannot be found. There's no I having the experience. Experience is experiencing. <laughs> appearance is appearancing. And that feels like a kind of sense of agency that is very different than what we classically call free will because there's nobody making the decisions that things are happening. Things are just happening to no one, but there's a sense of an isness where everything is just okay. It's very hard to put into words. In fact, I don't think you can put it into words. So this is not saying that there is no self. This is saying that the thoughts that you traditionally identify with yourself are not you, something like that. Or is is this an, a statement for the dissolution of the idea of self at all? So it's even beyond that. It's that there's no experiencer. So do you know how Rupert Spiro will talk about mm -hmm. step back as be the awareness, the sense of mm -hmm. I am, the consciousness is what we are, is his one of his teachings, right? There's a step beyond that, which is even consciousness as a subject, as an experiencer, disappears. And then even the idea of self, it's it's nowhere to be found. There's know you there. And, and it's very hard to put into words, but what that feels like is things happening, and that includes sound, sight, hearing, smell, taste, and thoughts. So thoughts materialize and they're, they just are what they are. So everything is just appearing, but there's no subject. And it, it's not even that the idea disappears, it's that even the, there's nothing there. It's just stuff happening. And the way that feels is infinite okayness, infinite freedom, and no suffering. And the reason there's no suffering is who's the subject of suffering? So even if a painful sensation arises, it's just experienced in and of itself as exactly what was happening in its right place to no one. Which again, it sounds crazy when you try to put it into language, which by its nature is a dualizing subject-object construction. When you say that it feels okay, who's it feeling okay to? Why is there no 
experience are there. You could say it this way, and again, even this is not doing it justice, and people who've had this experience are gonna be laughing at me going, this asshole's trying to explain this in words and you can't. You can I understand. Think, you can I think mean, of it, you can I think can of it. See it. Yeah, it's very tough. You can think of it this way. Pain is just, it's a self-illuminating process. In other words, it's a vibrating field of experience that just is in and of itself without the need for a subject. So it's truly non-dual, meaning not two. There's no subject and object. There's just this. So if we were to just stare at this, you know, this object, attention in a way, the beam of attention that feels like it's coming from a subject to an object, that evaporates and the object just radiates its own being in a way that feels more real than anything that you could experience as an experiencer. And the thing is to come from that state and then try to describe it is absolutely not possible. All you can do is point with words to evoke that natural state in people. But even that, you have to be really good at that. Like Rupert's very good at that. There are people that can point very directly. Muji on YouTube is very, very good at pointing very directly. Um, Adya Shanti might be good at pointing very directly. And and when you experience it, and people experience it in flow state, oh my, I, I disappeared and things were just happening. It was this just beautiful flow. And all they, they come back and go, I want that again. Because when you experience it, you have this weird intuition. And again, who is this you? Language will fail us. There's an intuition that this is what everybody's been talking about and seeking throughout all time when we look at any spiritual or, or wisdom pursuit. And I've only had sort of unstable short-term glimpses of this. And when I've come back, I've been like, oh, the ego immediately reasserts itself and goes, oh, I'm the guy that had that experience that was dope. I'm gonna tell stories about it, right? It's really interesting. But in the moment, you're just like, it's just pure wonder, personless, just, oh, and, <laughs> and then you come back and the mind comes mm -hmm. and tells a story about it because it has to, it, there's nothing else it can do. It has no words for it. You made an argument as to why we shouldn't experience pain when we're in that state. You use the word vibration. I don't recall what the exact statement was, but why can we not use that same argument to say that even the feeling of bliss when you're in that state is an illusion and there's no bliss either? So I, I would put it this way. All that is in that state is what is. So the raw experience, the unfiltered reality of what's happening at that moment, and whether it's a sensory experience like the sensation of pain, we, we call it pain because we apply this conceptual label to that experience. We say pain, which has a charge, a valence of negative, and then a response of avoidance or projecting a thought into the future. When will this pain go away? Or a memory, oh, this feels like that time I had you know, appendicitis or whatever. Without all that overlay, it's just this sensation happening in now to no one. And that's the other thing is time is not even, it, there's no con conceptualization of time. So it's just all happening as a kind of a wave right now. Now that can sound disconcerting. And actually anyone who's done psychedelics at any point may have had experiences like this and then come back to sobriety and said, oh man, I was just tripping balls. But what you may have touched into was the timeless nature of raw experience without the conceptual overlay. And what that feels like to a mind when it comes back is, oh, I was tripping balls, right? 
But in reality, it's, it's really one of the most natural, it's probably the natural state prior to mind imposing itself. In, in my opinion, because I can only speak from my own experience of it. Well, well, you can't speak for your own experience if there's no you. So when you say that, that's just a linguistic device. It's a linguistic device, exactly. And okay. by the way, Kurt, so people, do, the, the non-dual people do these li linguistic gymnastics around trying to not use the word I and all that, that's dumb. I think language is designed for a we space, right? So you have to use language to try to describe something undescribable. And all you can do is point in the direction. Only you can kind of have the experience. The, and, and by you, even that, right? You see where the language fails pretty quickly. Are you of the belief that what lies at the immaterial fundamental level is something like a non-dual vellum, just this one sheet, and it's undifferentiated? It's so hard to make metaphysical, ontological claims about the nature of reality without invoking belief. Because you, you said it there, belief. Is it your belief? And belief is another thought. It's another conceptual label on experience. I would say this. <clears throat> I've been un... So from an intellectual side, I've been uncompelled by the materialist paradigm. Yeah, that... that and. Feel free to interrupt me. I've been. Yeah, I've, yeah. I was going to say you mentioned that belief is a conceptual thought. I don't buy that. I don't think that that's the case. I think that we think it is, and I think that's part of the problem. Because, for example, if you say I believe that I'm in a, I believe the stove is hot, is not hot. But then you say, well, put your hand on it. Then it's red. And then you're like, no, no, I'm not going to. I would say you believe with your body. Your actions belie your belief. So what you say with your mouth doesn't match with doesn't match your actions and your actions are your true test of belief. And if it's embodied, then your beliefs aren't simply con concepts, aren't simply abstractions. So <clears throat> the unconscious response of the body, and remember, I actually wonder whether the body itself is not just part of a continuum of consciousness with its own belief conditioning. And maybe you may be right that it's not a thought-based conceptual thing as much as it is an overlay on experience because let's think of it this way i don't believe okay let's take the belief out of it putting my hand on that hot stove right i'm going to do it now right okay my belief from conditioning from experience and from what what the body is autonomically telling me that's been conditioned into my unconscious for into my reflex patterns right is this is bad this hurts must stop not good Okay, there's the belief component of it. In a, in a, if I didn't have those reflexes and I'm experiencing unfiltered reality, I would just experience the vibrating temperature field of that experience, which the mind would then say, this is terrible, you need to stop now, you're dying. And you would then smell the burning flesh, which would be a pure sensory experience. So in other words, there's a conceptualization that the mind does to raw data from from the sense field that's necessary. And it's so fundamental to us being human that, that you're, you're saying, well, I think it's more fundamental than that is not wrong. I just think there's one level even beyond more fundamental than that. And that's just the raw, unfiltered reality that's, that just is. Now we couldn't function, I think, just experiencing unfiltered reality like that all the time. We wouldn't be able to get across the street, which is why I think these structures of consciousness evolved.
I understand that one can get to a place where one feels like there is no pain. But to me, that's a different claim than saying that there is no pain. That's the claim that I get, I've gotten to a place where I experience no pain, where traditionally pain would be felt, like these Buddhist monks who can light themselves on fire. That's That to me seems like, well, what I'm about to say is contradictory, but that to me seems like an adaptive strategy rather than an ontological claim. Like one can, it's like a tool. Meditation may even be a tool rather than, and we're mixing up the tool with a claim about reality. I don't know. I'm just saying that. I'm unconvinced in each direction. Now, let me ask you a question about this. When given that the mind is self-deceptive and we know this and experience is fallible, or at least the inferences drawn from experiences are fallible, then why would one make the claim that just because I can get to a state where I feel like the self is an illusion, that the self is an illusion, given that the self seems to be the most pernicious and pernicious in illusion, and yet we've dispensed with it, how do you know that that itself is not an illusion? Right, so this gets to the question of like, where, how deep do you have to go before you can convince yourself that something isn't illusory? And I think neuroscientists, I think could say, well, there's no seat of the self, even neuro, neurophysiologically. There's no little homunculus in the mind where it's it's the thing that's the point where you know you're sitting behind your mind. You can look at default mode network and go, okay, a lot of our our discursive thought about self, our ideas of self, and our inward ruminations uh, kind of originate in the default mode network, which itself is not a point. It's a diffuse kind of body of things, and there are aspects of that even. I actually think that, and again, it, so some of this comes from experiencing these states, and the question is, how, what, what truth can you pull out of that? And when you talk about even meditation as a tool, like you're lighting yourself on fire, I think there is a component of, you can, there are meditative practices and jhanas and things like that where you can actually, you, you get very good at ignoring sensory stimulation to where it doesn't distract you. And that's very different than allowing yourself to experience the raw experience of being on fire and doing nothing about it. So again, without having gone through that, it's very hard to investigate because the way you have to, you, there's no way to investigate these easily without doing it introspectively because it refers to inner states. But then how much can you extrapolate out? And I think Harris struggles with this. So he'll always put the disclaimer, well, you know, I'm making no claims about the nature of the universe. I'm just saying this. Whereas Deepak Chopra takes the opposite tact and says, well, because I've experienced this in meditation, it must be true of the whole universe. Right, and I think both of those are very extreme statements. I think what you have to do is you have to kind of again approach it scientifically and say, okay, so what what would a materialist paradigm say about the nature of self? Is the self a real thing? Well, I think even materialists will say, well, no, it's probably a construction that's made by neurochemical processes in the brain that themselves are not conscious. So how is that any more real than saying? Yeah, the self is actually a, a mind construct made up of thought, belief, and it's a very tight web of thought going to thought going to thought that's conditioned from birth, that's all made of consciousness, and it can be seen through. It can actually relax. It never goes away, really. It, it can relax and get out of the way of raw experience. Um, 
I'm not sure there's a big distinction there. I, 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 which is why I'm increasingly convinced that, that when people talk about awakening, say spiritual awakening, really a, a big piece of that, I think, is the dropping away of the false sense that I am this to go to the next level of I am this, which is consciousness itself. And then even that collapses into what I am nothing, just this. So just this happening. And it, it, you, this is where you can't even open your mouth about it because (laughs) there's no you to, to, and I think that look, look, Kurt, like if this were easy to talk about, it'd be one of those things we'd all be pretty awake because we just in school, we'd be like, okay, so here's the thing, right? Do these three things, yourself drops away, you see truth as it is. Mm, if only, if only. And, well, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm unsure. I know that there's the claim of, of what one cannot speak of specifically, one must be silent. That's Wittgenstein's. And it's also true that it could be that our level of language is not sophisticated enough. So for example, go back 10,000 years. Well, that's not enough for grunts, but let's go back to caveman era when there are grunts obviously they lacked a level of language that would allow them to understand what a microphone is for example or what a or what any sufficiently almost anything in this place they wouldn't be able to understand it in the same way we do because they don't have the language for it so there's a relationship between language and thought and when people say that uh, that well we can't speak of it i i say we can't speak of it now i'm not saying that I don't think that necessarily, I don't see the reason why language would necessarily be incapable of expressing the thought of uh, the thoughts that one gets to in these meditative spaces. Okay. Either way, it doesn't matter. Th- that, that doesn't matter. Actually, that's I think, I think that's an important point that you bring up because everything that you just talked about is coming at this state from a position of mind. So in other words, from the position of the the, the linguistic mind, which as you say, is, this is important. Cognition and language are not to <laughs> talk about non-dual. They're directly related. And in your documentary, I think you interviewed a dude um, who was talking about that actually quite directly. Uh, and I'm forgetting his name now, but th- this idea that, so this is what I propose to you, Kurt. Um, you may be right. Like I can't disprove what you're saying, but I can only say this. From the experience of that state, I can say pretty firmly coming back and then using language. I said, I, 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 it's not a words thing. Uh, and, and the only way you will be able to understand that argument is by experiencing the state, which again is, it's actually not difficult to get to, but you have to be pointed in a way and open in a way. And you have to almost surrender the resistance of all our conditioning, which that's what makes it hard. And, I struggle with it. I struggle with it. And, and the problem is when you come back to the standard mind state from that more open surrendered position, your mind starts to tell stories immediately about how you're not worthy to ever get that back. So it, it's- I, I completely understand. At some point, if you just read the dictionary, it only refers to other words. So in a sense, almost every concept needs what's extra linguistic because you can't talk about what's bumpy, let's say, by reading the dictionary. You have to point to what's bumpy, experience it, attach the label of bumpiness. So, so maybe because this, 
these states are so rare for the majority of people, attaching a name is extremely difficult, if not impossible. I don't know if it's impossible, but I understand that it's difficult. You know what's interesting in your, again, in your documentary, going back to this, because I think, because see, this is important. How do we, we started off talking about how are we going to, how's the world going to emerge better systems if we don't actually understand ourselves well? You know, your theories of everything are crucial, but they have to include the internal universe of human experience, I think. That's my opinion. And, and the question is, how do we develop ways to point to these truths from people who've had those, are, are operating from that position? So they're operating from that present moment sort of experience. And I've met a couple people who are who do that and just talking to them can evoke the state. And and I interviewed one of them, Angelo DeLulo, who's an anesthesiologist. He had an awakening in 97. Since then he's further- 97. 97, so he's my age, he's 48. He, he, <laughs> and this is crazy. Talk about jealousy, dude. Talk about jealousy. I was like, screw you, buddy. So. The re but the reason he had an awakening is he suffered, he was suffering so much internally with all the just angst and existential dread. And at 97, he was suffering? In, in, in 1997. So before he- Oh, 1997. Sorry, not at the oh, okay. age of 97. Sorry. No, no, no. He's, he's my age, but it was back in 97. And he never, he had this experience where the self dissolved. He was pure emptiness, like the substratum that the universe- appears from from nothing. Uh, the idea of Buddhist emptiness doesn't even even kind of touch what he had experienced, he told me. And and this this then he never spoke of to anyone because he found he couldn't say a word about it. And it took him 20 years of further work, including going through medical school, becoming an anesthesiologist, like experiencing everything in the human condition, reasserting his suffering and everything to be able to better understand how to point to it. And even then, he said it's it's really really difficult, but just being around him can invoke those states. At least it does in many people who've talked to him, including myself, because I had him in my studio for two days straight. And I, I tell you, I was walking around like I was on LSD for a good three days afterwards. And even my family was like, "Wow, you're a different person." <laughs> it, it, it's really um, it's a real thing. And so how how would we begin to use language or the tools that we have to try to emerge that, and I don't have the answers for that, but I think it's something we ought to be looking into. With your cup, it says science the heck out of this or something like that. Do you mind showing it to yeah, the camera sure. once more? It's uh, science the crap out of it. Right, 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 right. Okay, do you believe that? The reason why I say that is because what you just described has almost nothing to do with science. In fact, it seems anti-science to go to one's experience, the subjective rather than the objective. So, so what's the deal with that cup? Yeah. And how can that, do, do you, when was that cup made? Was that before this three nope. day spa with this person? Nope, it's yes and. Science is absolutely the study of the external third person or internal singular physical, physical icon world. And it, it, again, to put it in, in, in Buddhist language, the causes and conditions, the dependent origination what what are the rules of that? Why does why does the manifest world behave the way it does? And science, I, and, and when, I, when I'm a deep adherent of this as a physician and as someone who advocates science based medicine and so on, but 
that is a yes and. So even transrational thought, it's not thought, this experience of like, well, okay, so what's the substratum then that even encompasses science? And that's what I'm pointing out with what I'm saying, but science is still absolutely valid at that relative level of existence, which is what matters to most humans because like us even being able to talk is understandings of quantum mechanics and understandings of electronics and Wi-Fi and all that. So, and, and medicine, so this is where it gets the intersection with medicine. Medicine has gone a long way using the reductionist scientific method. Reductionist meaning, and that's a very charged word. I, I don't really like it. It's more saying, okay, we're, it's a materialist paradigm. There are receptors and gates and molecules, DNA and so on. And if we understand that, we'll be able to do anything in medicine. And I actually disagree because I think what we're seeing there is what Hoffman calls our interface. And, at the, and we can get narrow and narrower in terms of the pixel density of the mm-hmm. interface. But at some point, we cannot get down underneath it to the transistors and electron gates that are actually running the desktop. So that's where the understanding of awareness, consciousness, and introspection is the next science, for lack of a better term. It, it, it... Man, I'm so glad you talked about this. Zubin, something I've been thinking about for quite some time is what is, and I don't like to say this, and I talked about this at the, I was speaking to previously, what is science 2.0? In essence, theories of everything is, the project is, it's teetering on the edge of that question. Think about a science 400 years ago, it's not the same science now. It wasn't even called science. And then so science developed. So then you can wonder, well, where is it headed? And then by what criteria does what does one include this into science versus not science? I call it abijnosis, which is a mouthful, but it's a merging of gnosis, which is knowledge in the Western sense, and then abijna, which is knowledge in the Eastern sense. And I'm not even sure if that's correct. Maybe there's a, a trichotomy rather than a duality. But either way, this whole investigation as to what is the next science. And you just mentioned, well, science is so-and-so, but I also think science is an investigation, not of reality, but of objective reality as it's currently defined, because you require intersubjective agreement. So agreement between plenty of people. And right now you've had experiences that I have, I can only glimpse at a at a scintilla of understanding. So we don't have intersubjective agreement with this, but it is still part of reality. Your experience is part of reality. That's not captured in science. So that's why I was saying, it depends on what you call science with your cup, if if whether or not you want to follow it. Additionally, you mentioned as a physician, and I think... I think any science outside of the hard sciences like math and physics are in the realm of ethics because you obvi- you have to apply it in the world of action. So you have to say, is this intervention worth it? And over there, you have a value judgment. Science would just say if-then statements. So if you give this person, this will happen. If this, if this, if this, if this. You then have to select between them, which is a, a, it's a moral hierarchy. It's an ethic. And I don't see that as incorporated into science per se. So please, let me hear your thoughts on that man i love this is the kind of shit like i just love because it's it's what i call you call it science 2.0 right i call it health i don't i hate it i I, I mean i say i hate calling i call it abigenosis that's better pronounce it that's (laughs) that's kind of awesome thank you yeah it's worse but i i i geek out and call it like health 3.0 which is this idea that it's it's the science is there, we're evidence empowered, but then you have this relationship with a patient that has these currently intangible because we don't have 
intersubjective ways to measure these things easily. You have that relationship and that hopes, dreams, and fears of the patient that if you know it and you form a therapeutic alliance, which emerges some state that we don't understand that we call the mind-body connection because we, we're, we're you know, basically monkeys flapping our meat holes. We, we don't do you know how to- you say therapeutic alliance? What do you mean? Explain so that, a, ther a therapeutic alliance, everybody, a lot of people have had this experience where, look, I'm having this suffering, I'm having this issue, I'm having this mental thing, I'm having a physical thing, whatever it is. I think they're all the same thing, honestly. When I find someone, a healthcare professional who sits with me, feels connected to my suffering, understands what I'm trying to say, witnesses my suffering, it almost doesn't matter what else they do. That alliance that we formed, this intersubjective we space, emerges a kind of healing, for lack of a, you know, it's a very woo-woo new age way to talk about it. And anyone who's practiced medicine knows this to be true. Anyone who's been a patient and has experienced it, they may not know it because they may still have this expectation. Well, but he also gave me an aspirin or gave me an antibiotic and I got better, or maybe they gave me an antidepressant. What, what, what they will not, and this is why if you read reviews of docs online, what they do doesn't matter. It's how they did it is, is I, what- I, That's fascinating. It has to do with also complaints. Doctors who people dislike get complained against at a far- disproportionate rate than doctors that they do like that gave them mistreatments. Absolutely. And you, this is interesting because doctors who get those complaints, and I, again, I'm deeply connected in the healthcare community, right? There's like 3 million people who, who follow across platforms and most of them are healthcare professionals and I get messages. They are wounded deeply when they get a complaint that says, hey, I don't like the way this guy treated me or the way that they behaved or the way their staff was, because they'll say, I did all the scientific stuff. I'm more evidence-based than the doctor that they wrote a good review for. I, I'm doing things. I'm trying not to harm the patient, so on. They have these expectations. They want antibiotics for a cold. They want narcotics for pain. I know that's harmful, and so they were mad at me. But what's missed there, and that's normal, that's defensive sort of posturing. What's missed there is that, well, so what failed in the therapeutic alliance that we're not able to let ourselves see because it's hurtful to us because we realize oh, there's something about me here that is actually, and why are they defensive in the first place? Because they know underlying it is this kind of unworthiness that many of us have, you know, as type A's. So it, it is a dynamic. And um, that's is why- Is that something taught? <laughs> what I mean by, no, what I mean is in school, do they teach you how to be personable or amiable? They, they, they give you lip service to the bedside manner and the patient relationship. And they, they, you know, they do this kind of thing, but they've not figured out how to teach it. The, the way that we learn it is by example from whoever our attending physicians are. So what I would try to do is try to emulate doctors that I knew were really good at that. And so here's an, and, and, but, but if you have bad mentors or bad examples, which is rampant because we just recapitulate the, our, our own training, um, and a lot of the older doctors are injured by their training. Like the training used to be just absolutely even more brutal than it is now by vastly. You by mean more. they're injured by it? Injured meaning psychically injured by it. So, you know, it, it used to be very common. You would just be in the hospital for 36 hours or longer, working the whole time, constantly shamed by your superiors. Ah, I see. Yeah. I see. So they then recapitulate this cycle. Uh, and, and so you watch it. And, and then, of course, it bleeds into patient care because you've been trained to be a psychopath. And now you're asked to be compassionate or empathetic right? Which I don't conflate, by the way, compassion and empathy, which we can talk about. They're quite different. And actually one is harmful, one is actually beneficial. But um, so we're not really trained it. We watch 
doctors doing it. Now, one, one thing I remember seeing, for example, is, is you know, Dr. Norm Risk, who was the head of ICU when I was there training at Stanford as a resident, he would tell patients that the, in the ICU, sickest of the sick, patients that we all knew, like us residents were like, why are we still ventilating this patient on tons of agents to keep their blood pressure up, giving them all these antibiotics, millions of dollars of care, patients unconscious, never gonna make it. Family is not clear that this is the end. And why are we doing this? This is a kind of injury to us because we're forced to be complicit in a torture because nobody is gonna openly say what's absolutely true, which is we're, we're not helping this patient. So what Norm Risk would do is he would call a family meeting with all of us, we'd sit there with the family, he would hold the hand of the person he was talking to as the authority figure with the gray hair. And he would say, you know, there comes a point where we are doing things to your husband instead of for your husband. And I think we are past that point now. And he would then engage in, you know, whatever anger or denial or bargaining or anything that came out. And by watching that, by absorbing that, you model, you imprint on that like a little duckling. And when you talk to patients, that same sort of language emerges. So that's that's a lot of how the apprenticeship of medicine training works. Now, you can imagine though, if you don't have a norm risk and you have you know Bobby McBobby from the community who's been injured by their own training and doesn't, is, is burned out and you, they're gonna model that to you. And, and honestly, by the end of my full academic career, uh, as a hospital doc, I was modeling bad behavior to residents because I was pretty burned out. So, you know, it took stepping away to regain the connection to actual compassion because empathy wasn't working because empathy will will kind of burn you out. Because empathy is feeling someone else. Yeah, so and uh, let's be very precise. So affective empathy is feeling someone else's suffering as your own. So taking that suffering and really inhabiting it and then acting from the feeling of suffering, not so much for love of the patient, but acting for relief of that suffering. Oh, I know what it's like to you know, withdraw from narcotics. Maybe the best thing to do is just give them a little bit of morphine to calm them down. Cause man, I, I've been through that myself. I have a quick question about morphine while we're on this. Yeah. I know we're on a great thread. Morphine apparently doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. Is that correct? Yeah, you know, I actually don't know the answer to that. I don't know okay. the answer to that. Yeah. Okay. Well, as far as I know, heroin does, and the heroin becomes morphine in the brain, and that's one of the reasons heroin is more potent than morphine. Mo I don't know if this is true. So most of them are, are processed in the liver to turn into morphine compounds that are then active. Okay. Yeah. Well, something I was wondering is, why is it that morphine feels good when it seems to give you a slight high if it doesn't cross the blood-brain barriers. That's simply because of the connection between mind and body? Well, okay, so first I'd have to confirm that that's true, that it doesn't have a central effect because I think it does. Um, I know it has you know, direct central spinal effect. There are opioid mu receptors throughout the nervous system. Now, I don't know, it could be just because I haven't looked at this in a long time, but the euphoric sense, which isn't, it's actually different for different types of opioids and partially it's how they're metabolized. And a pain specialist would be able to speak to this more cogently, but but we found patients would request specific narcotics because they provided a a euphoria, like say Demerol, Dilaudid, had much more euphoria than just IV morphine or heaven forbid, uh, you know, codeine, which mm. uh, you know I think ten or twenty percent of Caucasians don't even process correctly, so they don't get any experience from it. Um, 
And Wait, you, sorry, you're saying you don't want to give people coding? No, no, no. People don't want it because it doesn't mm -hmm. give you that that euphoria. Um, and so, so we, we always knew like patients will request a certain hierarchy of narcotics. In fact, they will even tell you, I'm so someone who's dependent on narcotics, and we, you know, we can use the term addiction. They may come to the emergency department with a complaint and say, okay, I'm allergic to morphine. I'm allergic to codeine. I'm allergic to all these aspirin and Tylenol derivatives. The only thing that helps me starts with a D. I don't remember the name, D, D, D. And you're like, Demerol? Yeah, that's it. Or Dilaudid? Oh yeah. So there's definitely a hierarchy of narcotics. So they all have slightly different um, experiences. Now, some of that is expectation. So we talked about mind-body. Some of that is expectation. One interesting thing is the placebo effect which nobody really understands. There's a guy at Harvard who studies it and some others that study it, but it's been getting stronger over time, over the decades. Now, why is that? Is it because people, especially Americans, expect our medicines to work more than they did in the old days? And it's gotten so bad, Kurt, that now apparently if you redid the same studies that showed that certain antidepressant SSRIs actually work, they would no longer work against placebo because the placebo has gotten so powerful. So it tells you again, like how much of this is mind, the we space, the therapeutic alliance, all of that, that emerges health 3.0, where you have the science component of the stuff that you can reduce to the objective. And then there's the internal experience, not just of I internal, but of we, the intersubjective experience, which is, again, it's an internal state externalized between two people. And we use language as a way to bridge it there's no way to know your internal state unless you tell me, which is why it's so uncomfortable to describe a non-dual experience because it's, it, you, the words just fail. And then you're just like, you think I'm crazy. <laughs> That's what it feels like sometimes. Remember how I mentioned that I think theories of everything, free will, consciousness, and God are intimately tied. I also think that the placebo effect and self-fulfilling prophecies are in there somewhere. Uh, I'm, I may be writing a, a book on the placebo effect because there's well it's just the more you think about it the more it boggles the mind as for the antidepressant not performing as well why would that be the case unless the antidepressant is harming you because wouldn't the antidepressant be raised at the same level as placebo yeah yeah so sorry i should be very specific if you did that trial uh um exactly back then using the level of placebo that is now you know the efficacy of placebo now it would fail mm -hmm. but what would mm -hmm. probably happen now is both would rise and the mm -hmm. question is would the uh, active ingredient rise more than placebo and still be statistically significant mm -hmm. we don't know because i don't think the trial's been done but it is quite interesting and you're on to something with that and and by the way tying that back into what you, your whole you know this you know gnosis that you're talking about in that first yeah, word which I, gnosis. yeah 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 you know uh, daniel schmachtenberger who I think you know, um, and I were talking and he shared a piece of writing that he wrote and he, he, he looks at it this way. He calls it the dance of the Tao with the 10,000 things. And that's a very poetic way of saying the absolute, which was whatever is fundamental reality, whether it's emptiness or awareness or whatever you wanna call it, dances with manifestation, which is the stuff we can measure and quantify and use our typical science on in an intimate, an inseparable way that's beautiful and complex. When I think of human organisms, I think of what um, what Federico Fagin, who I've had on my show, talks about. He's a, he's he's a like someone who's funded some of Don Hoffman's work. He is a physicist, Italian guy who invented the or co-invented the co-developed the first 
commercial microprocessor with Intel in the 70s and since has worked on AI and stuff. And he wrote a book about this. He feels that, you know, humans are these quantum classical hybrid systems where you, you know, when he uses quantum, he's talking about this indeterminate space where free will may emerge from nothing. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and that may be another synonym for this kind of substance of reality. And then it manifests in this very classical deterministic way in the form of the body. And the body, like a human cell, is a quantum classical hybrid. So you have this really kind of indeterminate free will generating complexity of, of isness, and then you have the mechanistic stuff we can measure and quantify, and they're not two. So I think that's an interesting way to look at that dance. Wait, wait, you said they're not two? Not two, meaning they're not separate, they're intertwined. In the at the human level or, or in reality? In, in, so in other words, the way he describes it as a metaphor is the human body is like the interface in a virtual reality. The user of the virtual reality is in the quantum realm and is pure free will decision-making awareness. Understood. And then it interfaces with this realm in an in a absolutely seamless way where you would never know that this is an avatar. But it, it, and again, but again, it's all made out of awareness ultimately is his posit. It's all still one substance, but it just appears in this way. And mechanistically it functions like this, where the avatar and our decision-making, and, and, and another way to think about this is when you're in a flow state or you're in an authentic conversation, like we're having a pretty authentic conversation right now, where is any of this coming from, the discussion we're having, the words that we're speaking? It comes from emptiness. It comes from something that we can't point back from darkness really. And Federico's argument is that it comes from the free will decisions that are in that realm rather than here. Now right. who knows, right? It's a typical, typical yeah. thing to test. This is why when people say free will exists or free will doesn't exist, I'm always skeptical because it's, it's absolutely not obvious. Mm -hmm. There are reasons to believe it in both directions. And then you mentioned also Sam Harris is someone that makes no ontological claims, but he also said that free will doesn't exist as an ontological claim. And he also said that God doesn't exist, which is an ontological claim. Of course, you have to define God. Yeah, I find um, Sam is an interesting character. So he, just as my own journey, you know, I was a pretty hardcore science-based atheist, reductionist. Anything I'm saying now, I would have struck myself as insane and probably that I'd been smoking something and not a good idea. Isn't that fascinating? Huh? Isn't it? And uh, and that would have been that would have been eight years ago that I would have told you that. Now, what's interesting about Sam is he was my gateway drug to spirituality. So I read his atheist works, you know, uh, letters to a Christian nation, and you know, I forget what the other one was, and um, was enamored with the new atheists and these guys. And I'm like, these guys are speaking truth, man. Religion's bullshit and all that. Then I read, you know, Waking Up: A Guide to Spirituality Without Religion. And I was like, wait, <laughs> Sam is yearning deeply for the same mythos, the same fundamental sense of, sense of isness, meaning, purpose, whatever it is, that everyone who's religious is. He's just found a different angle on it. And that's when I started meditating and exploring that path. But he, he made it okay to do that. Now, now I listen to him and I'm like, oh man, he's pretty stubborn about a lot of stuff. <laughs> like, like, you're right, he makes ontological claims about free will and God and so on. And, 
And, you know, I, I heard his conversation with Rupert Spira, which was kind of painful to listen to because they were just going at it. Like, is materialism real or is it all consciousness? And how can you say that? And so on. And I'm like, you know, you've got Rupert here. Probably it's a good idea to talk about, you know, non-dual experience. But but it was a good conversation because you could really dig into it. And he asked one, Sam asked one question of Rupert that I thought was fascinating. And that was, what happens under anesthesia? Have you ever had general anesthesia? And I have. And my experience of general anesthesia was this, countdown from 10, 10, nine, eight, where am I? I'm here, awake in post-op recovery. There was an absolute slice of reality removed and it didn't have the sense of continuity that you have when you go to sleep. So when you sleep, there's still a sense that, oh, how'd you sleep? Pretty good, how'd you know that? Because there's like a sense of being that occurs when you're asleep. Maybe it's, it's not just dreaming, I think even in deep sleep. But this was different. This was like, lights out, lights on. And it made me question, well, maybe consciousness is purely a brain-based material thing because if you give it certain chemicals, it's gone. Gone in a way that I felt like I was annihilated. Like that must be what death is like, complete non-being. And so Sam posed the question to Rupert and they got derailed before Rupert could answer. Um, because the, you know, you and I can tease this out intellectually. Well, is it just that memory formation is gone and therefore you can't remember anything about it? And so therefore you're still aware at some level, but you're not forming memories. And many have posited this, including those who have experiences of anesthesia awareness where they remember being, you know, ha being cut on and so on. Um, can I answer what I think Rupert may say? Sure. Did you experience non-experience? <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what he might say. He, so just because you didn't feel a, a level of continuity, you still experienced. You were only aware, you were only experiencing what you experienced. And to at that level, there was con there's continuity between experience. I, I I think you nailed it. I think and, and what's interesting though, so my mind told a story after the fact of what that experience was. It constructed a reality to fit, you know, because I'd never experienced that. I was like, what? This is crazy, and um, and 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 so after the fact, it was like, well, oh, maybe I was, maybe consciousness turned off, or maybe I wasn't forming memories, and maybe, and it stuck with me. I was like, oh, that was the one experience I had of of you know propofol. Just you're out. Uh, it, Were by you the way, in the, an affable the, mood afterward. What's that? Were you affable afterward? So this, Were you so this. Congenial? Here's something interesting that I found out after the fact. So propofol tends to do that. People wake up, they don't remember, and they're really amorous with the nurses. And, you know, <laughs> like, hey, baby. And, you know, and the thing is, my surgery was a penis reduction surgery. So <laughs> it's something that most men, you know, dream of, and I just had to do it out of necessity. So, so, so the thing was, I had, I had the sense, looking at the nurse afterwards, that I'd been yapping. And I didn't ask her, but I, I sensed that was the case. Now, if that were true, then any experience I had afterwards of discontinuity has no relevance to reality because I was awake and talking, right? And a lot of people who've had propofol will say the same thing. They'll have absolutely no memory of that. It's an amnestic. So you just, it, memory's gone. Uh, so right. re, actually rethinking about this because I hadn't thought about it. You know, you've prompted me to think about this, which you seem to freaking do in your interviews. I've, had, I've seen so many of your guests go, you know, I've never thought of it this way. I've actually never thought of it this way until Kurt said something that prompted me. That's one of your true gifts, man. So- Thinking about it now again, I'm like, hmm, probably 
my assessment of it is not correct. But that was something that Sam had challenged uh, Rupert on, and then they'd kind of gone off the rails a little bit after that. I remember it being under anesthesia. I remember waking up and just telling the person next to me, it was wisdom teeth, telling the person next to me, it's great, you're going to be fine. I just uh, reassuring this person. But I, I don't I think it. I was funny. <laughs> I think that was it. And then I just remember being wobbly toward the car. Okay, uh, getting back to non-dualism. I have some questions for you, if you don't mind. Yeah. Is the claim that is that what's fundamental, what's indispensable, primitive, and so on, this this realm of undifferentiatedness? Now I'm, I can't claim to be expert or stable in this, but try to imagine, and this is not imaginable, but it you can kind of glance at it. Imagine that there's nothing, but that even nothing is not the right descriptor because that implies that there is a thing that you're comparing it to. It's almost just a pure potentiality, a pure... Okay. Okay. Well, if it's potential to me, that means that there's a pluralistic notion. It's not non-dual because there's multiple within a potential. You could be many. Uh, but but uh, how do I say this? Mm. The, 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 that potentiality by its nature arises um, phenomena that that are in themselves made of nothing. It's almost like, you know, Rupert's analogy of the the film on a the film projector putting light on a screen. If the screen was this empty potential, you know, the light dances on it, but it's not substantial in itself. It's 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 a um it's a manifestation that this thing just does. It's like an a primitive urge to just manifest. And even what I'm saying sounds crazy, but that's what it kind of feels like when you glance on that. And there are those who've really gone deep into that experience. Uh, my friend Angela would describe it as, it's the experience of everything happening like a foaming gel, like phenomena are just happening, color, shape, sounds, out of, even to call it nothing is saying too much. It's happening That's like That's interesting, this. to call it nothing is saying too He's much. saying to call it nothing, and he'll say this, he'll go, you call it nothing and you're already doing it a disservice. It's not that, it's, it, it, it in this, it, it, it foams this reality that is entirely empty of substance and that then foams into the same no thing that it came from. And that's happening every iota of the now. And that's reality. And he says one other thing that he says at the very end of this sort of journey is that the one thing you realize that's very destabilizing to people who when you tell it to them is there's no way that things actually are. <laughs> and even that statement makes no sense to the, to the rational mind, but he says that is the truth. It's just happening by itself. And even that is like, and now I'm trying to describe how he would describe it and I can't. And uh, it's really fascinating. And you wonder if he's in any way barking up the right tree, that the na true nature of reality could be even more strange and wonderful. And, and I said, well, isn't that nihilism? Isn't that complete emptiness. That's my next point. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a pretext to nihilism. Right? It sounds like, well, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. And actually, as the human mind reads it in his book on the stages of awakening, 
He says, listen, guys, don't read this if you're easily triggered because this is going to trigger some feelings for you. And all I'm going to tell you is it's okay. The punchline is everything's better than okay. It's beyond okay. And you're like, what the hell do you mean by that? And you read it and you just want to throw the book in the trash. You're like, I'm sorry, the punchline is everything's nothing and it's coming into nothing and there's no way things are. What the hell? That sounds like the worst kind of nihilism. It defeats any human impulse to even be compassionate. Like why? And what he will say is, trust me, when you experience it, um, you will you will know that it is beyond okay. It is actually the best news you could ever imagine. And he says, you can't describe that in words. It's just everything happens perfectly as it should. And that means that even suffering, even the experience of suffering is exactly in its right place at its right time. And there's no you to fret about it, but it doesn't mean you don't feel it intensely and that you can't experience life in the relative in a, in a profound way that you can bear the kind of suffering that you would never have bared feeling you're a this. And again, that sounds crazy, he says, until you experience it. What I'm wondering is, you just mentioned, well, we were talking about nihilism. Why is it, where in that is the statement that promulgating infinite suffering or, or a, a large amount of suffering wrong? So why... Why can I not run amok and murder and rape and pillage and so on? Yeah. It's all nothing. It's all okay. Where's the moral compass? Like where, where's the directive? When we had God, we could say there's a judgment here. There's a morality that's set out in the Ten Commandments and so on. Thou shalt not. Where's the morality in an emptiness that manifests reality only in the present moment with no future or past and no self? What's to keep you from running amok? Or what's to say that you shouldn't? And what's to say that you shouldn't? Well, here is what they would say. And again, take it with what, what you will. When you've had that experience or you act from that space, there is no desire to do anything to another manifestation of this because it's as if you're doing it, it, it's all one thing. So what's even the point of hurting someone. And I had one person who's, who's wide awake, uh, who had this experience to an extreme realization who I've spoken with to the point where just talking to him will put you in the, in a state. And he was the one who pointed me to that sutta that says in the scene will be merely what is seen. And when he did that with me, I had the experience. And again, that was the, the guy who was 24 when he had that experience. Different guy. So this is, this is a guy who's an electrician who had an awakening in recovery for alcohol you know, in his early thirties, family guy, and had a profound awakening and since has further realized, you know, further stabilized his realization and, and was pointed to me by another person. And, and uh, what he says is, cause I asked him this, exactly this. I said, well, what you're describing to me now, cause he'll just talk. He will try to point for, you know, an hour straight and I'll sit on the phone just being pointed to, trying not to intellectualize too much, but it, you can't help it. So I say, well, what's to stop you from being a complete asshole? Because it sounds to me that you still have two daughters that you deeply love and a wife that you deeply love and you continue to do your job as an electrician and yet you're telling me the nature of reality is this. And by the way, he points to exactly the same thing that Angelo pointed to. And so what's the deal? And he goes, he goes, bro, I just gotta tell you, when you experience this, you have no, like I will not step on an ant if I can avoid it. I will not 
harm anything. I will go out of my way. I hate cockroaches. I now pick them up with a thing and throw them outside because hurting another thing, it feels like I'm hurting myself. And I, and I, I couldn't comprehend that. Even intellectually, I still, if there's no self, who are you hurting? But he said, they're just, it's just that way. Now, that then you have to juxtapose with people who apparently have had quite profound awakenings who behave in reprehensible ways. You know, um, the Andrew Cohens and certain Zen masters and so on who've, you know, sexually taken advantage of their students and have never done the work on themselves. They've like spiritually bypassed all their own baggage and that baggage still comes out unconsciously or consciously and they behave in what we would classify as reprehensible ways. So, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know the answer. Okay, so I understand if you were to experience that, you get to a place where you would no longer act in a manner that promulgates suffering. But what's to say that those who are currently promulgating suffering are wrong to do so? Yeah, they, they, they aren't from this viewpoint. They're just doing what they're doing. Right, so, yeah. doesn't, so this sounds like, so this is nihilism then, no? So again, it, I guess it depends on how you're talking about nihilism, but, but the idea that you would, you'd be compelled not to generate suffering. So what you exude in the, in the world would be something that actually reduces suffering, but you could look at suffering, and what Angelo describes to me is he says, when he sees suffering, he feels it intensely and purely, but without self, he feels it, and there is an urge arises to do something about it. You don't want to tolerate suffering. And he told me the story actually about, I can't repeat the story, but it was about standing up for somebody in a very difficult situation where he had to intervene. And this is as a fully awake person. So it's interesting. And again, not being in that state, I can't speak from that state, but the sense I get is it is okay. Now, one thing I wanna clarify that I said about these gurus who go around. Um, yes. Yeah, I think this is a very important thing that Angelo pointed out to me. And I think it's true from my own limited experience. The, the ego mind, in other words, our mind, our structures of conditioning and so on, it does not take waking up to this lightly. It doesn't take it sitting down. It Even after awakenings, people then have to contend with strong unconscious feelings, You know what Jung, Jung would call the shadow and all of this, those arise. And in fact, they're felt, you can't avoid them now because the, the mechanisms of thought projection to get out of feeling difficult emotions and repressed memory and so on, that, that becomes untenable, it becomes uncomfortable for you. So you have to face this, but some, sometimes and more often than not, the ego reasserts itself and co-ops the story of awakening to I am the awakened one who now mm -hmm. is the guru, who now mm -hmm. has power, who now unconsciously is getting validation from the students, who now is gonna fulfill some of these unconscious desires for worthiness by having sex with a student or whatever it is. So I think that's true. And, and Angela's pointed out to me, he said, even some of the biggest teachers that you see on YouTube, they have signs of this kind of ego thing. Everybody does, because that's just, we're so conditioned as humans. It's, it's very difficult to transcend it entirely and still live in the relative world. So, you know, he says, you know, even when you start spiritual pursuits, the ego sitting there in a hammock sipping a mojito going, oh, you wanna do spirituality? I got you, I've been doing this for thousands of years. I'll even help you. And it kind of co-ops the story. And I, I, I'm actually guilty of that too. Even telling the story from a position of ego feels a little creepy, right? What would he say? What was this person's name again? Angelo DeLulo. I've done a few shows with him. I can link you up with him. 
Sure. Yeah. Angelo, what, what do you, would Angelo, in order to stop a larger amount of suffering, commit himself to a smaller amount of suffering? So for example, you hit the child in order to stop them from jumping down a stairwell, or you execute someone if they said, as soon as I'm out of this prison, even within the prison, I'm going to harm and torture and maim. So is he for, what would he do in that situation? Or just let's imagine a fight is about to break out. And the only way, the only way to stop this person, as far as he can conceive, the only way is to knock this person on their head, creating a minor amount of suffering in order to save a larger amount. What would he do? So I can't speak to what he would do. I can only give an example of what he has done and told me. And that was in the process of standing up for this person who was much lower in a medical hierarchy. Um, he had to tell some very difficult and painful truths to another person uh, in standing up. And that caused intense unpleasantness in the now moment that it was happening. And that's how it was described to me. And so in a way it generated suffering then and there for the, the object. I don't know if it generated suffering for Angelo, I can't speak to that, but it was clear that it, it did, but the longer term consequence was a relief of suffering and a changing of behavior and so on. So it's really, it's really tough to say what he would do, but I think that, that that's kind of how I think about it. And again, I, I, you know, nobody's, I think our, our humanness, our ego mind interposes. And I, I wanna read one comment here in the thread on Facebook, Laura Ann Hartman says, spiritual bypasses are toxic. So are you familiar with that term, Kurt? Spiritual bypass? No. Okay, so this is what that means and it points to this. Spiritual bypass is where you wake up spiritually. In other words, you're like, oh, everything's one. We're all consciousness or whatever. There's no self. Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I'm here now, there's only the now. But you never, you use that to bypass all the baggage that you've been carrying around, all your neuroses and unconscious uh, issues and psychological mm -hmm. baggage. And so you feel like you're very awake, but in reality you're acting in the world and people will tell you, you're kind of a bigger asshole than you ever were since you had this enlightenment experience. And it, it, some people call that Zen stink. It's like another another mm -hmm. term for it. Like you walk around like you're this thing. And and that's a real phenomenon I think is, is people wanna escape their pain by bypassing ever addressing it. Now, Angelo in his book, that he talked about on the show called Awake, It's Your Turn. It's like a self-published thing, it's on Amazon. He has a whole chapter on like, no, you've gotta go then and dive into your emotionals, uh, emotional state and feel what you're repressing and look at thought, understand how thought works and it creates a sense of identity. Looking at the structures of self as they create themselves is the only way to understand how your mind's actually working and then be liberated from the suffering component. And one thing I'll say is one thing that I have gotten the capacity to do through practicing this is when I'm in a state of extreme suffering, which happens, I will simply, the something in my mind triggers to remember, oh, look what's happening. And just watch your mind for a second. And I'll go, all right, all right, all right, all right. Oh man, okay. Feeling this here, thoughts racing, you know, want to cry, like <laughs> just really stressed. And, and then just, take a breath and feel the, the presence, just the present moment. And man, dude, it is like, it's like someone took 360 joules of mm -hmm. electricity and defibrillated your suffering right there. It doesn't mean it goes away, but it resets from a framework where within just a few minutes, it's dissipated 
enough that you're no longer suffering like that. And I would have thought I was crazy if I had heard myself say what I just said, even like, you know, five years ago, but it's absolutely in our power. So the question is, whatever the ontologic metaphysics behind it is, there may be even simple tools here that are practicable. And it's not straight meditation, right? Because you said something that I thought was fucking spot on early in our conversation. Man, meditation does not work for me. It may work for others, but it doesn't work for me for this kind of thought storm and thing. I agree. Like this idea that, oh, suddenly you're gonna focus on your breath. When the thoughts are coming, you know, maybe those should just trigger the more meta-awareness of, hey, this is thought storm. That's not a breath-based Vipassana meditation, mm -hmm. you know? It's a different mm -hmm. type of mindfulness, but it's not a class, what we would classically call meditation, although some would argue it's a type of meditation. Mm -hmm. Who are some of these people I should speak to? Angelo's one of them. If you talk to Angelo, you'd have a great conversation. It would be a way better conversation than I've ever had with him because you're so uh, good at that. So a Angelo DeLulo, um, honestly, there are people that are more in the Rupert Spira spectrum on YouTube that I don't think you would add a lot to the conversation talking with them beyond what you did with Rupert. But if you talk to Angelo, uh, you'd get a totally different angle, like a mm. totally different angle on this. And I think I would, I would pay to see it, honestly. Um, Someone keeps calling me the nerd that sits at, sits at the front of the class who asks questions. It's the best. You're the, you're my hero, dude. You're, you're, you're the, you, I, I'm, I've been trying to formulate you, brother, because it's very rare that I'll watch somebody on YouTube and be and, and be simultaneously furious that, that I can't do that. And at the same time, just like jaw drops in awe. And, and there's something in your being, something in how you, your mix of intellectualization, which is crucial to getting at understanding and openness, like beginner's mind. Uh, you know, with, with Rupert, he's, he was forced to talk about non-duality in ways that I don't think he's probably ever had to do it, which is great, especially for a teacher where you're in these patterns of like, let me explain it the way I know it's supposed to be explained. And then along comes Kurt and he's like, bitch, I don't, here's, what about this? And, and Rupert's just like, uh, okay, let me think about that or not think about that. Let me make myself present and have this stuff arise. It was awesome to watch, man. It was really, really, really compelling. I think it comes from personal humiliation. I've been humiliated. <laughs> By these, like you mentioned, you used to be a staunch atheist materialist for, let's say, 15 years at least. So same with me. I'm not saying that I'm not that, but I'm, sorry, I'm not that, but I'm not the opposite. Right. And there's so many experiences in my life where I thought for sure this is the case, and then it's not. And it's come to the point where now the more I trust my own instincts, the more I see, actually, I have questions every single, and everywhere. So here's an example that's near and dear to you with regard to the whole issue of societal mistrust of science. I, I understand it. I see that, like, I understand it on one level. There's some, there's some amount of following that has to occur because not everyone can do their own research. So some, and society is based on trust, but then at the same time for some tenets bruited by the institutions, let's say, and I'm not using, I'm not, that's not square quotes. I'm just 
quoting, okay, institutions that like, for example, masks were good, now, or masks were bad, then masks were good, and so on, that, that they raise my eyebrow when they before wouldn't. I was a wholehearted truster of whatever the scientific quote-unquote community says. And now I just, I want to look at the research. And I understand that I don't want people to take away from this a justification for their own mistrust, because that's, I see the same happening on the one end that's saying, no, trust whatever Fauci is saying or whatever, whoever is saying, I know that's a hot topic right now. On the one end, you have people who are with a limpid characteristic adhering to that. But then at the other end, you have people who are completely anti-vaccine saying that they're anti-trust of science. But then if a, if a, scientific article came out saying, oh, it turns out that the COVID vaccines were horrible. You'd see the anti-vaxxers jump on that and say, yes, you see, but I thought you mistrusted science. Why don't you mistrust that as well? Like you should be doubting everywhere. So for me, I'm, I'm doubting everywhere. And even my brother, who is a professor of statistics, math, of, technically of finance, statistical finance, he said he, it would take him a week to go through any meta-analysis because it's not trivial at all, even for a professor of statistics. That's another reason why I try to do as much research as I can, because I'm, I want to understand. So when someone makes a claim like vaccines are good or vaccines are bad, and by the way, Zubin, there's so many, oh, okay, you're getting me a bit excited now. I like where you're going, brother. Intrude into my sleep. <laughs> but something I dislike is it's not just it's the labeling of people who mistrust science as they see them as just Trump supporters, irrational Trump supporters. And because one side hates Trump so much and Trump has been attached to anti-science, then they view anyone who is critical of whatever apologue is given by the institutions, quote unquote, as Trump supporters who are racists and bigots and anti-intellectual. And people who are intellectual, one of the worst, their worst fears it's not being irrational, it's being seen as being irrational. So they want to be on the side of what's intellectual. And I think there's so much hidden motivation behind people to believe what they believe that it takes so much self-investigation. You think that you believe in vaccines or anti-vaccines because you're on the side of the truth, but you, you peel away and you realize there's something more dark underneath. Man, oh. Uh... What, what you just unleashed is the Pandora's box. That's kind of the central premise of our platform during the pandemic, which is <laughs> you do have to question everything. You do. At the same time, it's balancing with relying on expertise that you don't have to parse data that you can't parse because either you don't have the time because it's impossible to do it all or you don't have the expertise. And then filtering through the lens of the authorities have gotten a lot of shit wrong. We've been... There's a huge profit motive. A lot of our regulatory agencies are uh, are captured by the same entities they're supposed to regulate. Witness the Alzheimer's drug Adohelm and the, the nonsense there that would bankrupt the U.S. economy, uh, the, the U.S. Medicare, if we actually approved it and they approved it, despite two studies showing it really doesn't work. Um, th this kind of questioning is, is what, it's what I call on our show the alt-middle. So it's this new like stance. And it's something that we've kind of, uh, we've made t-shirts with it because we're, like that. we're idiots. So the alt-middle is a radical position that you inhabit 
that says, okay, uh, forget about politics and all that. This is about opening your mind to different ideas without judging people who hold opposing ideas as evil. So in other words, hearing everything, seeing everything as maybe having some truth but being partial, and then assuming good intent and having discourse. Well, heaven forbid, that there's nothing in social media that rewards that, with the exception of what I found paying subscriber platforms like Locals, Facebook, YouTube, where people pay five bucks a month to congregate and have these discussions. Speaking of, man, that was perfectly timed. Someone just gave $10. Look at that. As hey, soon as you said that. Andrew Dunbar says- Synchronicity, man. Andrew Dunbar says, I dozed off shortly after Dog introduced the guest. I woke up about 10 minutes ago with no clue what was going on and thought, yes, yes, this is what happens when a society legalizes marijuana. <laughs> Now, I don't know if you're talking about you, Andrew, having smoked a little too much or us, either way. So so back to this alt-middle idea, um, and thank you for the support, Andrew. The, the, you can create environments, you can model environments where the pursuit of knowledge, understanding, being civil to each other, that sort of thing, actually, actually is the default. So I, I was recently on the Rebel Wisdom podcast with uh, David Fuller, and we talked about this trying to find sense. One of your big concerns is how do you make sense? How do you make sense when the the epistemic commons, like our, our common knowledge sources are gone? There's no more Walter Cronkite. There's no more single source of truth. It's now a bunch of fragments, each with their own ideology, that it's all about signaling. Like you said, oh, as an intellectual, I don't even wanna be perceived as anti-intellectual. Half the shit I told you on this thing, I would never have said exactly. three years ago because I would have been vilified by like a David Gorsky or someone as full of woo, anti-scientific, mm -hmm. you know. I know exactly how you feel. You know what I'm talking about? So so I think this is a, a fundamental question. And I do think it's gonna emerge. I think we have to, those on the leading edge of it, which is like our audience, like your audience, my audience, they think like this. So let's encourage it. I've gotten to the point now where I never used to like censor comments on my on my threads. But what mm -hmm. I'm finding is when people behave in ways that are that are anti-alt-middle, so they're throwing ad hominems, they're being very overtly politically, you know, idiotic. You know, it's like, oh, I you're a Trump supporter because of this, or you're a radical leftist because of this. That's why I loved your documentary, by the way, because you dive into that shit in a deep way, which was beautiful. Thank the, you. I've started going in now and deleting, blocking the people who make those comments because what they're there to do is to signal to their tribe. They're not there to advance conversation. And then what I noticed is, so then you get all kinds of complaints. Oh, you're, you're, you're stifling free speech. It's mm -hmm. not free speech. This is the community I'm trying to create. You can come here and we're, this is our value, is alt-middle. So if you behave in that way, you can disagree with me. In fact, I want you to, but I want you to do it in a way that assumes I'm not, I'm not acting in bad faith and you're not acting in bad faith and we're coming to a, a, a discourse. And it changes the dynamics and people go to the video and they see the comments are much more constructive, even if they disagree, than you stupid bald pharma shill, I'm gonna tell you, know, you're paid off by <laughs> Pfizer. I'm like, That's I hilarious. wish, bro. <laughs> you know, I have the, I'm still on your, I'm still early zooming then because my, I'm of the mind. I don't delete a single comment. Some people think I do, but YouTube's algorithm actually filters out quite a few. It does. Yeah. And people think I'm actively deleting. I'm not. So my disincentive system is I read each comment. I heart them, but if they're negative toward the guest, I don't heart them. Right. So they can be negative toward me. They can be negative toward the guests, guests theories, but not ad hominems at the guests. And then that's the only time I don't heart them. And I, but I don't delete. 
I actually like what you're doing. You have to do that in the beginning. It's only because the guest is like, the guest, this is, I, they're in my home right there. So I'm not going to have, invite them in and have them insulted. People have said terrible. Insult me, it's fine. Totally, I'm with you. So that's how I used to be. I would only block people who were being absolutely vicious to my guest because it is, it's like someone comes, a guest in my home and someone comes and throws feces at them. It's like, no, that's not okay. They're in my house. But now I, if, if they, what I, what I've decided is it's an, it's in, if I'm trying to model behavior of how we should have discourse, why should my community be showing the opposite of that behavior? Now, now again, that's not for everyone. And actually David Fuller and I talked about this on, on, on a discussion on zoom. It's like, what do you do with this? Uh, because you don't want to stifle Delicate conversation, balance. but at the same time, you, you you almost want to encourage like, hey, I want you to disagree in the comments, but do it in a way that's civil. And then the comments fill up with people that disagree. That's great. Instead of bald pharma clown, which, hey, I love that stuff because it juices YouTube's algorithms. Because when YouTube sees course, controversy, course, it course. serves it out. But is that good for like building an alt middle mindset? No, it's the opposite. Yeah, I don't like snarky comments either. Or people who ask questions, but they are asking it from an antagonistic point of view where they just want to, well, that, technically it's called trolling or make baits. I have a discord and so there's moderation there, but not by me because I cannot take part in the moderation. I, I don't want to censor because I, I don't, I know you mentioned the term good faith and good intentions. I actually, I'm on the opposite end. I don't care if someone has bad intentions. The reason is that I have bad intentions. And the more I examine my good intentions, the more I realize that they're bad. That's why, so I don't care if someone has bad intentions. I also don't care if someone's biased. The reason is that for someone to be biased, sometimes they can get to an argument, a place that you have to be motivated in order to get there. And they can tell you, they can come up with a tr to a truth that you would have never found because you're not going to expend the energy because you're not tied to that particular philosophy or whatever it may be. So I actually don't mind speaking to someone who's biased because they will have the most strengthened are the most strengthened arguments for their position because they're so what they're so devoted to it. Oh, I agree a thousand percent. We're all biased. So the question is, you can be biased and come and make these really intense arguments. I want that. What I don't want is just straight ad hominem or like you said, the kind of trolling grandstanding, like, you know, if I have a guest and they're just making these comments that are vicious and there's just no, now I used to just let it all go because also I didn't have the capacity, right? So it's just, but my assistant helps me now and we have these sort of rules of how to do it. But because Facebook got to the point where my audience was asking me to moderate comments because it was just full of just the worst conspiracy stuff, just discounting anything I said based on I'm paid off by some pharma thing, which by the way, that's all public information. I'm a physician, the Sunshine Act, forces any pharma company to disclose what they pay unless they're behaving illegally, right? And so, yeah. so I have to say, well, yeah, I did a couple talks talking about Health 3.0 to pharmaceutical M&A people, the, the, the medical affairs people uh, who do the research and there it is on the site. So how, how am I in Pfizer's pocket? I, I really want, so the key thing is like, you know, with vaccines, it's so hard to know because you can get a really smart person online who maybe even be a virologist like Gert Vandenbush, give what sounds like a very compelling argument for why we're really harming people. And, and you and I maybe, maybe even talked about this, uh, saying this, here's, here's the reasons I think this is a terrible idea. We shouldn't be doing mass vaccination during a pandemic. Here are the mm -hmm. reasons why we're gonna generate mutant strains that are, uh, that are resistant to the vaccines, but that the immune memory is gonna prevent us from being able to fix that 
um, even with, with boosters and so on. So it sounds very compelling. You dig into it and you, you see, okay, there's some flaws here in the thinking. Actually, some of the science isn't quite right. And oh, he's actually got his own thing that he's trying to develop that has to do with natural killer, killer cells. So it'd be- Man, yeah. Zubin, I, I'm like, so on your level, not with respect to disbelieving Gert or, or discounting him in any way, but with regard to hearing the opposition, what I want with my channel, I wanted to get you or someone else who's an expert in, virolo in, in virology to speak with Geert or someone else and hammer it out. But what I don't like, and going back to the mistrust of science is that, these large agencies, and this is not a right issue. It's not conservative. In fact, Noam Chomsky talked about this in the 70s or 80s with manufacturing consent. They, the fact that I may be demonetized for talking about the potential dangers of vaccines or having a debate on it, I, that's where, where my eyebrows raised. Why are, you, why are you squelching the opposition? They've made everything worse, right? by doing that, that's insane. You have tech oligopolies making decisions on who can speak, that's insane. What we should do, now here's the problem though. So how do you make sense in a world like this? And, and this is something David and I talked about, David Fuller. Because e even my argument to you, like, well, I don't wanna do a thing with Gert Vandenbush because first of all, I'm not a virologist, we need a virologist. Second of all, there's this idea of false equivalence whereby highlighting a platform that you firmly think is wrong and harmful potentially, you're giving it more credence. Now, I think that argument is no longer valid in this world. It's no longer right. valid because they have a platform. It's called YouTube. They can go and say whatever they like. Your job as a scientist or whatever is to try to promote what you think is correct and the discourse that leads to that. So we ought to have virologists going and talking to the bigger people that are that are promulgating these ideas, you know, the Malones and Von, Vandenbush and, um, you know, uh, uh, Pierre Corey on Ivermectin and these kind of things, go and have the conversation, you know? And and I would, honestly, I would do it. I don't have a problem with it. The thing is, I actually, <laughs> I, I don't feel worthy to do it. Like I, I, I'm- I'm. No, I, a, no, I completely understand. I, I'm a communicator. I need somebody who studies this for a living to go and say, okay, let's go depth by, in depth by depth because I'll be manipulated. Like a Pierre Corey would have no problem, actually not him because I think I could, I could do it with him. I just- I've talked about this publicly before about ivermectin and why I, I, I think we need the trials before we can say anything about it. But th that all being said, you need somebody who can really dig in. Now, the problem is the big virologists are biased in their own way. So they're like, you know, part of the mainstream scientific community. They see this as just an annoyance or a nuisance. They don't realize that these, these folks are influencing a lot of people to not get vaccinated. So if you think the vaccines are safe and effective, then it's kind of on you to go and communicate it. Now, Paul Offit is a big vaccine guy, mainstream guy, come on my show a few times, very rational guy, but he is biased towards vaccines. Obviously, this is what he does, he's a pediatrician. And he's invented the, co-invented the rotavirus vaccine that's you know saved countless lives around the world, but he does see it through that lens. Um, he's written a book on why scientists are terrible communicators. So what can happen is a not very good scientist who has enough of the lingo, who's a good communicator, can convince the world of something that's a really a fringe idea with equal weight or bigger weight than the mainstream that are terrible communicators because they're in the lab all day and they're a little bit on the spectrum and they're you know they're who they are and you know Paul in his book actually wrote a lot of stories about how he would go on these press things and just make a fool of himself because he just first of all I think scientists overestimate it's like part of the Dunning Kruger kind of uh, curve where it's not that you you know so little that you don't know what you don't know. That's like very low understanding. You know a lot, but then the 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 logic the um, cognitive uh, error there is 
you assume everyone else knows at least as as much as you do. And you operate from that assumption and it comes off either as condescending or or just blind to the fact that people need basic education on this stuff. So it's very complicated. And I, I struggle with my own role in this because you know, when I do a show, I'm look you can see I've got nice equipment, it's all very polished, beautiful. you know. So Too beautiful. Already you Talk should talk about fury. Already <laughs> you look great, brother. You know, yours is authentic. Oh, only guys. Oh, compliment. dude, dude. But, but, the, but the thing is, it's so polished, you shouldn't trust me. You may instinctively not trust me. Like I'm looking right at the camera. I'm making eye contact with the audience. I'm speaking without a script. That's a little concerning like to, to people. Some people find that very off-putting because it doesn't have the, you know, like if I were just with my phone, I'm like, guys, let me just tell you what's going on. And I, I do that too. I usually do those in lives those will often engage a lot more because people's trust mechanism fires when they feel like they're on a FaceTime with someone instead of this very produced thing. So I struggle with that in terms of my own show. It's just, I'm a nerd and I like shit to look good. And I look like shit at baseline. So having a nice camera <laughs> and lighting. <laughs> um, by the way, I gotta say this about your um, your documentary, uh, Better, Better Left Unsaid. Your suit that you wore in that, it was tailored like. Oh wow! It was. I, I was. I had suit. Guess what? It was not tailored. It was off the rack. Dude, it fit you yeah, like so a. I mean, not, yeah, that that was a coincidence. I mean, I'm not gay, but if I were, I'd be like that guy too, in that man. suit with me in that suit. Yeah. <laughs> Is it all right? I'm going to quickly mute. Turn off my mic. Sorry, mute. Turn off this for about ten seconds and tell my wife that we're just wrapping up. So yeah, that she absolutely, knows. absolutely. Want to respect your time too? I'll read some comments while you're doing that. Um, Tim Davis says, uh, I wake up almost every night at 3 a.m., did an experiment with glucose monitor, noticed my glucose levels were clashing, crashing at, at the, every time, every night. Diet uh, at the right time resolved it. Now it's only occasional. So Tim was talking about like his waking up in the middle of the night of anxiety was due to a physiological yeah. cause. You um, know, another, sorry, is it okay if I tell you a bit about my sleep quickly? Please yeah, do. When I, so I've been fasting for the past, some 70 four hours or so into a fast. Ah. And when I fast, I tend to not be able to sleep. I also find that my heart races faster. Even if I, even if I'm not thinking of an anxious thought at all, my heart just seems to beat. I don't know if that's correlated with the fasting or if is, or is it different. Is it a pure water fast that you're doing? Well, sometimes I have coffee. You have coffee. Okay. But you're yeah. not getting electrolytes. You're not getting anything else. Okay. So to some extent, the sleep deprivation may just simply be a hormonal hunger thing. It could also be that the sense of palpitations, the heart kind of racing that you have, it can sometimes be because your potassium is a little out of whack because just the liquid that you have Gatorade, like a zero Gatorade. Well, Gator, yeah, Gatorade without any, um, and again, I'm not an expert in water fasting. So someone like Peter Atia, who's a friend of mine would be a good person to talk to. Um, the, the, the idea that, there's a lot of things in, you know, in a 72 hour, let me see. So, you know, three days of that, you know, human body's pretty resilient. You can do that, but there will be these aberrations. Well, I'm and about to eat, man. After this, I told you, I'm going to go into bliss. I am going to eat every, I know that I shouldn't do that after a long fast, but that's how I. Dude, operate. that's how, that's how we evolved. It's like nothing happens. Right. Like, I'm wondering, is yeah. this good for me or is this bad for me going through it, it, it's somewhat like intermittent fasting, like drastic fast, overeat, drastic fast. Do, do, I imagine that. Sorry. No, go go ahead. Go ahead. I imagine that that's plenty of what our ancestors did, though not all the time, but for plenty of the time, because you would kill. So, even. 
Assum orange. Assuming you don't have an eating disorder that is gonna be exacerbated by this, right? Which is always a, a caveat. Fasting is like, it can be wonderful for people. I think it's not anti-physiologic at all. I think there's plenty of at least reasonable level evidence that it's not harmful and it may be helpful for some people. I myself do one meal a day as my sort of feeding window thing. And that's the only way at 48 I keep from becoming morbidly obese because I love food so much that if- I am the exact same way. One meal a day, almost every single day because I cannot help my, I am avaricious, I'm voracious, I'm rapacious. I, you're using some big words that I don't understand and I'm gonna take that as a personal insult, all right? But I will say this, I'm a fat ass if left to my own devices, I will, you're, you're exactly, and by the way, when in your, in, your, in your documentary, when you showed your mom's cooking, I was like, oh God, I wandered. Oh, yeah. I wandered, yeah. my, my parents are, are Parsi from uh, Pune, India. And my mom, same thing, just the, I just, I could eat that all day and be like 500 pounds. Um, and, and so, so your sleep and your fasting, they do interact. And some of it is the fact, how often do you do the fasts? Once a week, I'll fast for 48 hours. Okay. This one is 72 hours, but yeah. it's once a week, about 48 hours. Man, how are you? Eat one meal a day. So, so, so anyone who's like, oh, you fast and your brain gets foggy. I mean, you started out foggy because you were tired and you've done a bunch of podcasts, but then man, once you woke up, it was like, oh shit. So mm -hmm. whatever ketones you're burning now are effective. Well, as you energized food. me, man. You energized me. You take all the credit belongs to you. Trust me, because I've been speaking to a couple of people today and you should have seen me just and a torpor dude sometimes uh mental and spiritual apathy sometimes when i have an in-person guest and i'm not feeling it it's like i'm in a different world like my mind is somewhere else and i'm like uh okay back to this happens rarely but I, it's really it feels so horrible it feels terrible I, and there's well you've taken your time out for me and then it's as if i'm not giving you your best i also well i also wonder see this is what I mean when I say I constantly question myself because how much of my fasting is also self-sabotage. So one, because I'm vain and I want to keep thin Two, because I'm filled with velocity and I want to eat three, because it's okay that I fail because I'm fasting. And so therefore, therefore, ah. if I'm not up to par, I have an excuse. So I'll, that's not consciously there, but if I examine myself, I can imagine that that lurks just thinly veiled underneath. Brother, it's like we're cut from the same cloth, man. So the, the reason I never prep for interviews very much is partially so I have plausible deniability when it sucks. I'm like, well, you know, I just winged it. I, you know, I, I didn't really do anything. So yeah, I mean, next time if I, if I did something, it would have kicked ass. It, 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 the mind, and a lot of it's unconscious. You can bring it into consciousness and you shine a light on it. But, you know, I gotta say, and now the only thing I'd say is that maybe research a little bit on your electrolyte situation is there something you can do within that fast that I'll, will i'll try that yeah you know especially potassium and sodium are often wasted early on in a fast as you switch from burning carbs to burning fat and go into ketosis there's a diuretic effect where you do lose a lot of that so a lot of times in people talk about the keto flu when you're first going into ketosis um this idea that people feel really kind of crummy may may be partially due to that aspect of it like Atia and others have recommended broths with high sodium and potassium. Uh, you can take, you know, uh, potassium supplements. I don't know if that's necessary for this. You, you'd really have to kind of dig into it a bit because I'm not an expert in it. But those are just off, off the top of my head. And then 
man, I'm looking forward to your meal, dude. I I, I know what it's like. I'm eating, looking forward to it. <laughs> eating after a fast is like, oh, it's orgasmic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, really. Someone really mentioned THC. I'm wondering about dabbling in some of that. That also helps me sleep. THC helps tremendously. Yeah. But apparently THC, while it reduces the sleep lag, like the time it takes to get to sleep, Wait, it disrupts your sleep cycle. But CBD doesn't contribute to sleep lag, but it helps your sleep cycle. Yeah, that I've, I've heard exactly that. And I've experienced that with THC that you go to sleep fine and then you wake up with this you know, kind of dysphoric sense in the middle of the night a few times, at least I do in my elder oh, years. Oh no, for me, for me, I wake up in a bed of, of mirthful, overjoyed jubilance. Oh. Like, oh my gosh, this feels so great. Like, Cause I wake up so rested. And yeah. even in the middle of the night, if I wake up, I'm like, these are the best sheets. They feel like they've been just washed and it's the queen's sheets. Isn't it fascinating how our perception is so malleable? You know, hey, w- one thing kind of just to tie it in. And I, 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 I'm by the way, just stop me whenever you need to go because I know your wife. Keep going. I'm enjoying this, man. I just wanted. To, let me tell my wife once more. I just want her to know. Don't and don't get, get me in trouble, bro, sure. or blame it on me. <laughs> you know, uh, we'll, let me read a comment real quick while we're doing this. Um, I wake up with the munchies, says Jamie Vance. There it is. Lizette Paris is a supporter. Says, oh, I feel like Indian food right now. Right. So do I. We're getting Korean food tonight after the show. I'm going with my family. We're going to go to uh, Foster City and get some dope Korean food. Um, On Facebook, Samantha uh, Espionage says, I'm very open-minded and will listen to the beliefs of others, even if they contradict my own. I take both into consideration. And if the opposing belief seems more logical than my own, then I'm not afraid to allow myself to adopt them. So that's what you consciously think, Samantha, that you're already ahead of most people. I would advise you to even look unconsciously and go, what part of me is resisting this? What part of me is triggered by this? What part of me won't um, let go or the malleability of my own beliefs? And it may be that you're, you've already done that, right? Which is wonderful, but many of us haven't. You know, my unconscious is very resistant to a lot of things and I have to bring that resistance into conscious awareness, you know, shine a light on it. You know, they say like sunlight's the best disinfectant. It's the same with consciousness, making something that's automatic something that's now aware is, is a huge uh, asset. So what were we talking about, brother? We were talking about um, perception and Hoffman and mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. the one interesting insight I've had <laughs> that may not be yeah. an insight. So I rarely ever uh, uh, use THC anymore. When I was younger, it was a different subject, but now, you know, occasionally I'll do it as an experiment into into consciousness. Like what, what does this do for me? Yeah, and I'm not a fan of recreation drug use, recreational it, drug use. It yeah. has to be, for a particular purpose, like insight into the re- into reality or to help you sleep or whatever. Maybe. What, Therapeutic. Therapeutic, yeah. Some kind of investigational purpose now, right? When I was young, it was recreational and that was not a good idea. So the, 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 um, what I noticed with that is, you know, if Hoffman talks about our perceptual interface, our, his interface theory, which is we have a species specific way of seeing the social network mm-hmm. of consciousness around us. And it and it evolved to allow us to reproduce. It's a, it's fitness payoffs. It's not seeing truth. Well, what drugs do, like THC, like LSD, whatever, is they take that evolved interface and they shift it. So LS, LSD may really just blow it out energetically, right, as if. It's what you're saying that what we see on LSD may be partially what reality is truly like, or a distorted version. No, what we're what we're all what I'm what I would argue is Hoffman's argument, which is 
reality is simply consciousness interacting with itself and we see it in a constructed way that benefits us as a species to reproduce. So we construct it in a way that allows us to get food and have mates. Now, what, what the drugs do is they don't, you don't, you don't see more reality or whatever. What you do is you see that same reality, the objective reality, which is this conscious agent network happening, um, manifesting, but you see it with a different interface. You might see it with an interface that would be evolutionarily advantageous if X, Y, and Z. So what I find with THC, this is what I think is fascinating. You, you'll talk to those people, right, who are, and there's a lot of variation in our own interfaces, people with syn synesthesia who you know, hear sounds or see uh, sounds, things like that. Or, or Hoffman gives the example of the chef who, whenever he tastes mint, he feels in his hand a cool column of glass. Um, those are mutations in our interface. They're changes in our interface that at some point may become evolutionary advantageous and mm -hmm. we select for them. So what, what, what I think is with THC, there are those people who are like, bro, I just am so anxious at baseline. I can't sleep at baseline. I'm a total asshole. Like Joe Rogan will say this. I'm a complete asshole at baseline. I smoke some weed and I'm just a different person. I'm better, I'm calmer, I sleep better. I could do this all day, every day and still function perfectly. What I suspect with them is their baseline interface is slightly shifted towards the more paranoid, a little more sensitive, a, a little more anxious, a little more insomnia, a little more thoughts racing. You give them THC, it shifts it back to what you and I would call normal or, or whoever, whoever's in that normal state. Right. For me, as someone who's you know a little anxious, whatever, what, what that shift does is it makes me more paranoid, more sensitive, more enjoyable of sensory stimulus. So food, touch, sound is unbelievable. But with that comes a sensitivity to thought and a self-referential aspect that makes me very unhappy. Like I see myself mm -hmm. from outside as this horrible, just evil, nasty thing, mm. and, and it's crippling. So, so it's a shift in our perception, a little frame shift, and the dose tells you how far you shift. Um, and the kind tells you what you shift into. So if it's like LSD or mm, if it's THC, or, that's my theory. Now, again, how do I prove it? Can't. Yeah. Yeah. What have we not touched on? Was there something we were supposed to? There's a universe of things that we'll just have to do a follow-up. <laughs> yeah, we definitely will. I, you know, we were gonna, medicine and all that, that's a whole nother conversation. We talked about a lot of things. I okay, really, I have one question. I, I, I wrote, okay, someone said, I heard him talk on trigonometry recently, which I don't think is true. Were you on trigonometry? No, actually I wasn't. Wisdom. I saw that well, coming. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, perhaps they meant rebel wisdom. Yeah. Okay, excellent. He spoke of the problem of changing his opinion based on new information. It is old. Okay. Now see, we talked about grandstanding before. I think there's rational, it's almost like virtue signaling, there's rational signaling. I don't believe people when they say, I changed my mind based on new information. The reason why is that it's extremely hard to change your mind. It's, and not only that, but would you change your mind based on any new information? Are you saying that you have no other value system embedded? So for example, if the world told you through some truth mechanism that you should kill your wife or kill your dog, are you telling me that you're going to override your beliefs to follow what's rational? Is rationality the God? Why should you follow that if it leads you to destruction? So I, I saw that and I thought about, I don't believe people. And I saw this Veritasium video once, not to pick on Veritasium, but Veritasium was in a university crowd 
holding the camera to himself and someone was saying, how is it that you change your mind when you are presented with new beliefs? And he's like, well, you know, these beliefs, you, you just, you get new information, you update them, you just slot it in, even though you don't like, and I'm like, you're so pretentious, man. Firstly, you don't think like that. Secondly, it's not that easy. Thirdly, maybe you shouldn't because, well, you don't know where rationality alone will lead you. Rationality is a it's like an arrow with no direction. You have to direct it. And that direction process isn't exactly rational. It's like pre-rational. Dude. Those were my thoughts. And dude, I wanted to know what you thought about that. Dude. So how big of a Jonathan Haidt uh, understanding do you, do you have? I, I'm not much. Okay. Not much, other so, than big five and political belief. That's it. Right, 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 right. Talking about the big five, um, the moral palette, you know, fairness versus cheating, authority versus subversion, et cetera. So his other big analogy, which I think speaks exactly what you're saying, is this. So, and I keep this here because I I, I want to be reminded of it. The elephant and the rider. The elephant- i not a monkey on the elephant. Uh, right? That would be better. It's just someone, one of my supporters sent me this, and so I use it as an oh, example. Sweet. So sweet. thank you, uh, uh, Patricia, I think, sent me this. So the elephant is our primitive emotional mind, what Daniel Kahneman would call system one. So it's it works on heuristics, emotion, feeling, Is intuition. Fast? Instant fast, yes. Okay. It's the fast system, exactly. Mm -hmm. So it happens, it, it, it's, we share it with a lot of animals. It's, it's um, highly conserved evolutionarily, ancient brain. And it works to make these snap judgments. It, it holds our deepest sort of biases and beliefs. It's partially genetic, it's partially conditioned, but it is what it is. And it's the thing when I say, oh, we've made a decision, you know, six seconds before we're aware of it. Often that's our elephant just making that decision unconsciously and feeding it up to this guy who is the rider of the elephant. That's our neocortex. So rational thought, math, moral reasoning, persuasion verbally, uh, those kind of things. The, the, the rider seems to be something reasonably unique to higher mammals. Um, in that, you know, and in probably self-referential thought occurs in that. It's slower, it's more deliberate, it takes more ATP to, to make it happen. Um, and the theory was, oh, we we evolved the rider to control the elephant so that, you know, mm. a, we our, our rational mm -hmm. thought overrides emotion. But look at the size differential. <laughs> like, who's really in charge? So Haidt argues that the data actually shows that he's reviewed that the, ele the, the, the rider, is not the president in this little consortium. It's the elephant's press secretary. Hmm. Have so, you heard Ian McGilchrist, Master and its Emissary? A little bit. And I saw that you'd interviewed him. That was the next thing on my list to watch. So I'm sure he kind of talks about this too in terms of split oh, that's brain. Precisely. Right, yeah, right, right. Same right. thing. All these roads converge because I think they're they're pointing at some truth. And the idea is that it's a press secretary because the elephant emotionally, belief-wise, has already decided. It then needs this writer to persuade okay. others in the tribe that we're right, because our life depends on it. Hunting rights, breeding rights, food rights in a tribe of 100 people. That's interesting. People. Yeah, so evolutionarily, this writer evolved as a persuasive tool. Well, now you weaponize that through social media where everyone's got their elephant. They now have a like button to say, my elephant agrees, and a comment mm -hmm. field to go, here's what my writer thinks of that, a dislike button to say, or an angry button to say, my elephant disagrees, and a comment field to attack. And none of it goes to how do I change my mind in the face of new data, right? So <clears throat> when I say I've changed my mind, like for masks, elephant 
response on mass early on was, uh, I'm a doctor. This is bullshit. Like having the public wear a diaper on their face is dumb. It's not going to do anything because people don't use it correctly. They're going to touch their face. At that time, I thought this was also fomitically transmitted, meaning a lot on surfaces and stuff, which has since been disproven. So I was telling people in videos, listen, I think wearing a mask outside as a public person, unless it's an N95 or a surgical grade mask, is a dumb idea. And I don't want you doing those things because you're going to hurt my tribe, which is the frontline healthcare professionals who don't have enough PPE and they're seeing this, right? And community spread isn't as high yet. Well, when, when that shifted for me was having some guests on the show like Monica Gandhi, who said, listen, even off camera, she was telling me, listen, we don't have data that shows that masks work. That's a problem. We don't. We have certain suggestions that it reduces the inoculum of the virus so that even a dumb diaper on your face is going to reduce the sheer number of viral particles. So you may then turn a ICU case into a asymptomatic case because there's some data to suggest that viral inoculum, especially in other diseases, matters for severity of illness. And so then I said, okay, this is different now. So now anything on your face might reduce you down to an asymptomatic case. And so then I said, listen, guys, I think probably, I don't believe in mask mandates because my libertarian elephant is like probably not a good idea, mm. but maybe we should say that this is not a bad, a bad thing. And if it keeps us, bends the curve so that my colleagues in the hospital can survive this and we do okay, then maybe that's a good thing. So that was an example of changing even publicly what I was saying. The, the other thing that I changed, and this was pure bias in the beginning too, that I had to recognize, I had a bias, like you said in the beginning, towards the authorities. Like, wait, CDC is saying this is not a big deal. WHO is not calling this a pandemic. The Chinese government scientists are saying, okay, we like what they're doing here. They caught this early. So I did a video where it's like, oh, guys, this is what could happen. I don't think it is because the Chinese have got this under control. It's the stupidest video. It's still available. I don't delete videos. It's out there. In the beginning of the pandemic, like January, I'm like, stop freaking out. Here's what's happening. Now, this could get bad. These are the things we need to worry about this one. And they did a great job. Oh my God, did that video not age well? So I leave those comments like, you rip me a new one, man, I'm an idiot. And then I have to go back and say, here's why I changed. Now I'm very distrustful of anything until I'm convinced by talking to enough people that are I'm connected to or reading the data that, that it's something different. But it still hurts. It still hurts our belief structure. Like if it violates, like if you told me tomorrow, man, this vaccine that I've been talking about publicly is harming people, making them infertile, doing all this other stuff. Here, now we have data, it's incontrovertible or as close to incontrovertible as we can. Yes, 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 yes. I would... I would want to die. Like I, it would feel so horrible because my belief structure is, no, actually I've looked at this data, I've used all my tools of belief and science on it, and I'm very convinced that this is safe. Something crazy has happened. Okay, the first thing is to do is gotta do a video and say, oh, I was wrong about this. And that's gonna hurt. Like it's gonna be the worst. But you have to, you have to accept that level of pain. And, but I think you're right. I think it's very easy to virtue signal. I changed my mind. Look at me, I'm a better human and really not be changing your mind at all. In fact, if anything, your fundamental belief is I go wherever the popular wisdom is or whatever will get me views. And you haven't changed that belief at all. So by changing mm -hmm. this belief, you're just going with that flow. And that's mm -hmm. something you have to be very aware of. It's, it's, it's tough. It's, re it's a reason why I'm so, I'm not a great interviewee, despite the fact that we've been speaking for quite some time because I don't have any belief any staunch to beliefs, at least not that I'm conscious of. As soon as I put up a proposition, I can see its flaws. And I also guide myself or try to by this, I think it's Arthur Kane who said, only the shallowest of minds can believe that in great controversy, one side is mere folly. So when it comes to 
anti-lockdown or anti-masks, if there's a large enough amount of people saying it, I want to hear what is your best argument. And perhaps you're not, perhaps what you're saying is false, but the meaning behind it is correct and you're not articulate enough to put it forward. So for example, I I find it strange that the, I, I find it, extra, COVID is such an anomaly, man, mm. for many reasons. I find it strange that it's the right that's anti-lockdown when the left should be about liberties. And I also find it strange that the left is for universally pro-abortion and the right is anti-abortion when the, it doesn't seem to map on exactly. And the reason why is think of Jainism. Jainism is about, like you mentioned, I don't even want to kill a cockroach. I bring that outside. Jainists, who we would think of as the most hippie-like left-leaning people are complete anti-abortion because it's also life. And so then it's being being pro-abortion on the left Or is it that your team somehow decided this through some other process and you're identifying with the team? And that's why it's so, it's such a dangerous game to say, I am left or I am right. What are the odds that that 35 tenants of the right and and the 45 of the left or whatever it may be are ones that you align with? You are you. It's it's a difficult game to to attach yourself to a team. Man, see this, okay, you said you're not a good interviewee. Mm-hmm. Forget about that. I'm partially not a good interviewer. But. No, 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 no. So forget about that. What, what my, you know, my, my uh, producer Logan was telling me before the show because he watched a bunch of your stuff and he's like, "Hey, don't interview Kurt. Have a conversation because he's tremendous. He's just absolutely tremendous asking these questions and it'll generate conversation." And I'm like, "That was my plan because watching your stuff is the same thing. Because you know what? Actually, being a good interviewee is boring as fuck because it means that again, you have a lot to say." but not a lot of questions, not a lot of openness, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I find I'm a better interviewee than an interviewer because I've been thinking about this stuff so much that I wanna just tell you all about it. And then the idea is, well, well where am I open to these ideas? Now, d- diving into something you said, this, this is the centerpiece of what I call this alt-middle thinking. In my tribe of people, we have a lot of conservatives, a lot of libertarians, a lot of liberals, a couple Marxists, not a lot of very far-right people, but people that are very libertarian. And they all, we, we talk about it in terms of Jonathan Haidt's like moral taste buds. So when you think about abortion, et cetera, by the way, remind me to tell you if we have time about, about the, the video I did about abortion, that boy, you can see how that triggers the tribal behavior of in-group, out-group. So long story short, you have these taste buds, liberty versus oppression that you value, fairness versus cheating, loyalty versus betrayal, authority versus subversion, care versus harm. So in other words, you know, care versus self-explanatory. And the sixth one actually is, um, because there's a little subtlety there, is sanctity versus degradation. Um, This is from Jonathan Haidt? Jonathan Haidt, in in his book, The Righteous Mind, he lays these out, why people good people disagree on politics and religion. And what's interesting is each of these issues can be filtered through a moral pal- your moral palette that you're often born with, like you have these certain values. So liberty versus oppression, so it turns out liberals tend to really emphasize, they all have all six, but they emphasize two, which is fairness versus cheating and care versus, or you know, or, you know care, yeah, care versus harm. So, the, the, and that makes sense because then you go, okay, they don't like rich people taking advantage of stuff. They want to take care of poor people. They, you know, these are the values they project, social justice, et cetera. 
conservatives actually have those, but then they really value loyalty versus betrayal. Look how the Republicans tend to be quite unified, even when Trump does some crazy stuff. They're like, yeah, but he's our guy, right? And then you have uh, liberty versus oppression. Well, yeah, so it's a more libertarian value. And sanctity versus degradation. It turns out liberals and conservatives parse this quite differently. So a conservative will look at sanctity versus degradation in terms of religion versus atheism, or in terms of abortion, the sanctity of life versus the despoilment of, of that through abortion. The, the liberal would take that same moral palette and go sanctity of my body, my choice, versus you know some a state invading that sanctity with a vaccine or with me not allowing to do what I want with my unborn fetus. So they can all kind of parse issues through this. Now you then weaponize that through tribal behavior. So the left has this ideological checklist, what Jordan Peterson calls ideological possession. So I just, I, I, don't, I don't even know how I feel about some of these things, but my tribe votes this way. And the right has a similar kind of set of doctrines. So when you ask the question, I don't understand why the right does this and that and that. Some mm -hmm. of that is ideologic possession. Some of that is they do tend to value these moral palettes a There's little something bit. There's something inveterate. Something, yeah, exactly. And then there was a, oh, so the abortion piece that I did. So I did a like one of those direct to camera things. It was when Alabama's state legislature was you know, intervening in abortion in some way that a lot of physicians were saying, you know, this is a bunch of men can't legislate medicine. This is a medical procedure. Let doctors do this, do this um, decision-making with, with patients. So I did a video where I said, hey, I agree with that. Like, this is a medical procedure. This is how it's done. Uh, it should be the right of, of uh, women to make the choice with their doctor and with whatever religious belief they have, et cetera. It shouldn't be a legislator doing this, in my opinion, and this is the thing. But let me tell you a story about why I, I understand why people would be very opposed to abortion on a deep moral level. When I was a fourth year medical student or third year medical student, I was compelled to witness second, late second trimester abortions at San Francisco General Hospital. And what I saw was, you know, fetus parts being removed and this and that. And I, I gave this very emotional story about what it was like. So did that feel like murder to me at the time? Absolutely. Could I understand why people would feel this is a sanctity versus degradation kind of violation? Absolutely. Until we understand that, you're never gonna have a dialogue because you're gonna think someone else is trying to oppress you. It's a power dynamic instead of a moral dynamic. We have different into moral intuitions about this. Let's talk about it. And so I got a ton of messages from people saying, that's the most cogent I've ever heard. That's how I feel as a doctor who performs abortions. Like. This is what, and, and but then I got hate from the the uh, a lot of abortion doctors and a lot of very lefty lefters who are like you're you're basically normalizing violence against abortion clinics by saying that mm -hmm. by giving any nuance right 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 I know and and I was but, like I as I felt attract like attacked by this tribe of healthcare professionals I was like oh my god but I I, I didn't remove it in fact I did another video where I talked about it more but it, man it's rough right? The moral yeah. palate. They yeah. want, they dislike the other side so intensely that with your nuance, there's a part of your argument that can be used on the side that they dislike. And so they want to discount the, the argument entirely. Yeah. Yeah. False equivalence again, rears its ugly head. Man, Kurt, are you pooped or what, bro? I'm looking forward to being that and going to sleep at yeah. some point and yeah. eating. So let's wrap it up. Yeah. Yeah. I think Thank I you so much, man. Dude, this was uh, this was a real joy, man. Like, yeah, yeah, me too, me too. I wasn't expecting to go on for more than an hour, and it's been two and a, almost almost three. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm so sorry. I know you're starving and you're tired. And please, I wanted to please tell to hear what you have to say. T- tell your wife uh, I'm deeply sorry, and that my wife hates me just as much because uh, I do the same thing. Um, so at least we have that that kind of true equivalency. So thank you so and much. The same thing as what is going on overextended. Yeah, yeah, overextended. Okay. Uh, come home, you know, I, we have plans, and I'm like, but just a couple more minutes. I'm I'm doing a show or whatever it is, and so it it, it is what it is. Brother, it's it's just a joy. Um, hopefully, we can do this again at some point in the future. If you feel inclined, uh, just let me know, and and we'll make it happen. Thank this, you. We've never done a live format like this with Zoom. Oh, uh, great! I'm I'm honored to be the first. Oh man, it's it, it's really awesome to have you. You're the perfect guest for this. And not a guest; it's a conversation. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank and I, you. And uh, we'll connect very soon. Um, and to everybody who's watching, uh, thanks again to Kurt. Check out his stuff. So. His uh, podcast, his show on YouTube is called Theories of Everything. I've put links in. His documentary is called Better Left Unsaid, and it's a ride. It is a ride. Is the director's cut available publicly, Kurt? On betterleftunsaidfilm.com exclusively. So if you get it from iTunes or Google or Vudu, firstly, much of the money or some of the money goes toward them, whereas from the website, most, if not all the money go toward the filmmakers. There's some split between different places. Perfect. That's the you also on the website, get access to the director's cut, I believe for free. If you just buy the regular version and you don't get access to the director's cut, find my email. It's online somewhere and email me and I'll send you the link. That's awesome. And you funded this thing with Kickstarter, Indiegogo stuff type, that sort of thing. Yeah. That's great. It's and personal money. uh, It's really well done, you guys. So if you want to dive into like, the craziness that's going on in society in a way that's so unique. Uh, watch the director's cut, really. Watch the director's cut if you're into this because it is it goes really deep. It's a, it's brilliant. So, thank you so much, guys. And until next time, I'm gonna figure out how to stop this. Kurt, you can sign off. You are the bomb. Unless... I also want to just make a quick amendment. Oh, yeah. When I said personal money, my brother invested heavily into the film, so I just want to make sure that that said. I don't want to misrepresent, dude. So family, you, Sebastian. Family and you are identical, as far as I'm concerned. That's how I see it. So, uh, yeah, thanks for making the clarification. But that's awesome. It's really wonderful to have support, right? There's a deep gratitude that arises from that. Um, like I, my supporters on Facebook and stuff that pay for all this equipment. On YouTube and locals, great. They're the best. They're the well, best. They made. They got some great equipment. Okay, man. <laughs> I gotta get going. Thank you. I'll sign off, and you can speak to the audience if you like. I'll, I'll wrap it up, okay. Kurt. Thank you, guys. That was intense. How we've been talking for almost three hours. That's crazy. Um, wow. So, you know, we started out kind of slow and got in the groove as. Uh, He's been really sleep deprived and doing podcast after podcast. Let's take a few comments right now, just because I want to wrap up with your voice, because I think that's important. And we didn't get enough of that in the thing, because we were so into our ourselves. Thank you, Anne, for your support on YouTube and Andrew Dunbar. Um, actually, Andrew Dunbar says, the sanctity versus degradation dichotomy also applies to how some on the right view gun rights. Totally true. Sanctity versus degradation in gun rights, liberty versus oppression in gun rights. I, I, you know, if you don't understand how someone who holds opposing views sees the world morally, you don't understand them at all. And you're going to vilify them because you're going to see them through your own moral matrix, which is not how they see the world. And you need to understand that our moral matrix allows us to do what we perceive is good in the world. We filter it through that. So everybody, most people are trying to be good. 
which is why you can assume good intent. It used to be I would get very triggered by people with different political views, and I would assume them they were just bad because I was using my moral matrix, my moral taste buds as the, as the litmus test or the filter. Now I get excited to hear opposing views because I wanna know what the moral matrix is it's coming from and honor it. You go, oh God, you're trying to be good and this is how you see being good. Okay, I can't be mad at you. I disagree for these reasons, but let's have a conversation. What do we agree on morally? What do we agree on we wanna see in the world, right? And then you can start from a consensus, sort of common, human, common humanity politics instead of this identity where we're all separate fighting each other as tribes. That's really what a lot of identity politics that used to be a great thing in the civil rights movement has devolved into this, our group existential battle against everybody else that's a power struggle trying to oppress us. Well, what if we just assume good intent and try our best instead of vilifying other people because of the way they're born, right? born white or born Asian or born whatever. Like, forget that, dude. That, that's horseshit. That's, that's the definition of discrimination. Um, June Black says, I felt so bad for him being so tired at the beginning. Glad he came around. Yeah, dude. I, I really, hang on a second. I just, there we go. I'm still recording. That's good. Um, I felt really bad for him. And I felt like, what, what, you know, we were scheduled to do this and I was like, am I torturing this guy? Because, you know, we didn't even know what we were going to talk about. We had no agenda. You know, we'd connected via email and, and uh, I was worried that it was just going to go off the rails real fast. And uh, it didn't, it went on the rails, which was off the rails. So it was a lot of fun for me. Yeah, it was intense, right, Jana? Um, <laughs> George Shepard, my fulcrum is different uh, from so-and-so's fulcrum. That's a good way to look at it. Like, right? Where's your fulcrum? That's great. Ashley Stewart, I feel the exact same way. I never learn from people who think exactly like I do. You can't, it's just a kind of group think. Um, Jamie Vance, how do you break through to people who allow their moral compass to dictate a conversation? I struggle greatly with helping people uh, see that everything is true but partial. So th that idea of alt-middle that everything's true but partial is a kind of moral assertion. It's a kind of meta-belief about belief. So I think, I think accepting that person as they are is one thing. This is how they're showing up. It's the best they can do at this point. And then gently, this is very hard, gently nudging through conversation some ideas that might open them up a little to, first of all, maximizing whatever level they're at in terms of their thinking, and then opening them to whatever that adjacent level is. And it, it, I see it happen again and again. I see it, it's not impossible. It's not that we change our minds, it's that our minds grow. They, they transcend and include what came before, to use Ken Wilber's language. Um, you know, it's a beautiful thing. Um, oh, how kind of you, theories of everything. Kurt Jaimangal commented, thank you, Zubin, can't hear you, but typing to say thank you. Kurt, you're the best, man. What's Kurt's full name? Kurt Jaimangal, and it's in the description for the video, Dorothy Morrison, afterwards you can see it there. Um, J-A-I-M-U-N-G-A-L. He's, he's awesome, really. Like, I love people who think like that and who are self-reflective and very, very intellectual, but able to also relax into a kind of beyond intellectualism. It's really key. Um, Sophia says, uh, on YouTube says, the ego has a lot of power, always reasserting uh, through and into survival mechanisms. So Sophie, let's think about ego for a second. I don't know why I'm still talking, I've been talking for three hours. 
and I got to be somewhere, but I'm into this now. It's a kind of a flow state. Oh, my neck's going to hurt tomorrow. Um, we tend, so in spiritual circles in particular, in meditation circles and those kind of circles that look at this stuff, the ego tends to be objectified as something that's there. It's like this entity that we need to fight or we need to overcome or that's doing these bad things to us or so on. And I think when you approach it from that angle, it, I'm not saying you're doing this, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm speaking just expositing on this. When we approach ego from that angle, we turn it into an object. What's the only thing that can turn other things into objects? Ego. So my friend Angelo says, when you go to war with the ego, it's the ego going to war with itself. It, it's a very subtle, it's a pattern of conditioned thoughts, beliefs, and perceptual distortions that are just happening, just like everything else is just happening. It's just happening, and what happens is it binds attention so that we think this is it. And the ego knows us better than we know ourselves. It's had millions of years to evolve with us. It knows our deepest, darkest thoughts and knows how to manipulate us. Now, I, again, I'm objectifying it, but let's just say that pattern of energy is really good at tricking attention into following thoughts about self and so on, creating the sense of self, this person behind my eyes that's seeing objects around me as separate instead of just everything as one thing, one as, as um, Kurt called it, one vellum, one substrata, one thing, one reality. And the, oh, by the way, Jody Jacobs on Facebook says, I stayed the full three hours because I love this conversation. Thank you both. Jody, that makes me so, oh, I just love that. I love that. That really warms me up, my ego. But even beyond ego, there's something like, there's something in our authentic bits, right? That when you connect with another person, like we connected during this conversation, you and I and Kurt and all that, it's just this sense of just elevation. Like, ooh, that's beautiful. That's humanity at its most connected, right? Even if we don't agree on everything. Um, yeah, Josette, check out his movie. So his movie's crazy. It's like real experimental and weird and it doesn't seem like it's all gonna come together. And then at the end, it's kind of like, what? You, got, you gotta check it out. It's some crazy shit. Um, all right, now I probably, I probably should go because I can hear this box trying to record and it's probably running out of space. Hold on. Yeah, it's crazy. It's still actually recording. I don't know. I didn't know it had that much space on that card. Um, cogito ergo ego. That's right. George Shepard, I think, therefore I am ego. Ego itself is a friend. It can be a it's a it's a it's a pattern of energy that's kept us alive. That's goal is to protect us from a seeming external world. To it understands that we're separate and it says, okay, as a separate thing, this is how we stay safe. It doesn't know better. It can't know better. It's not a thing. This pattern of energy, we should honor it. We should thank it. We should be grateful for it but we should recognize it for what it is. We should recognize when it's trying to co-opt and turn everything into a story. You know, the story of the one who woke up, the story of the one who meditates, the story of the one who's embarking on a spiritual journey, whatever it is. So anyways, June Black says, I can't believe it was three hours. Didn't seem like it. Man, I can't believe you guys are with 
with us this long. Ashley, same thing. You guys are crazy. I do need to hydrate, Sandra. Thank you. I'm tired. Um, Samantha, man, you guys are great. I, you guys are the core audience because there was like, you know, about a hundred and some on each platform the whole time. You guys are really the core, hardcore devotees. And I, I'm so grateful for you. All right, I gotta stop doing this. It's an affectation, but I love it. When I went to Thailand when I was younger, this was, it was a very Buddhist society and everybody would just do this. And I got in the habit of that. And it's a kind of a, I see you as me and a gratitude thing at the same time. It's really lovely. All right, I'd, I'd rather do it than shake hands, honestly. Um, all right, I love you guys. Now I gotta figure out how to end this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say bye to uh, YouTube first. So bye-bye YouTube, till next time. And then <clears throat> I gotta figure out Facebook. I think the way I'll do that is I'll fade to black and then I'll end when it ends, all right guys? Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just gotta ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.